You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 444. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show was recorded on the 23rd of September, 2020. In today's episode, a World War II-era bomber crashes in California. A Dutch university successfully flies the scale model of a new, more fuel-efficient passenger jet design. More news, your feedback, and today's plane tale, Holmes and the Battle of Britain. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 444 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger. He is an award-winning TV and radio reporter currently at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds in New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast covering the latest in aviation news and answering your great feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, a captain at a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia. And joining me today from... Her lakeside studio in the Carolinas. She's a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated jumper dumper pilot, Dr. Steph. That's the technical term. Yeah. So, yeah. To all those who offended just now, no apologies. Uh, glad to be here for 444 and looking forward to a great show. Excellent. We're looking forward to it as well. And also joining us from... His studio in the English countryside. He's a professional photographer, former RAFRAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff, and hi, Steph. You know, uh, a jumper dumper might be something completely different here because I say I'm going for a dump. Well, we have that too. But... And jumpers are something totally different. Yeah, they're really, <laughs> okay. really. Do I have to take that out and post now? Because I don't. I'm offending everybody. No, there was I nothing. Somebody there. told me that that was okay to say, but hmm. oh well. well. No, it's fine. Yeah. It's yeah. all fine. Well, you know what? I don't care if you're offended out there. So be it. Send your email to I'm offended at airline and pilot guy. Just jump out of that airplane. That's right. Just jump, you dumper. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's get on to the news. I mean, if you're jumping out of an airplane, there's something wrong with you. Anyway, right? No. Stand by for news. All right. Thank you, Paul. Let's uh, go over here, Jeffrey, to the news notebook. We'll start with the item A, appropriately. World War II era bomber, a B-25, crashes near Stockton Airport. And this is from ABC... 10.com. Stockton, California. A World War II era bomber 
crashed about five miles away from Stockton Metropolitan Airport on Saturday night, San Joaquin County Sheriff's officials said. Sheriff's officials said the pilot tried to land in a field before striking a ditch. The plane received significant damage in the crash. Officials said three people were on board the plane. Two received non-life-threatening injuries, while another person was able to walk away. Fine. The, uh, fine. The, uh, two injured occupants were transported to the local hospital. NTSB and FAA officials will take over the investigation into why the plane crashed. And we have some audio, and let me set this up a little bit from uh, liveatc.net. Uh, when they're traveling in these, um, uh, these old war, war birds, they usually have like a chase airplane somewhere following them for support and such. And uh, in this case, it's a Bonanza. The, uh, uh, the, the B-25 started in Chino and flew up uh, to Northern California, stopped at the Nut Tree uh, Vacaville Airport for a bit, and then uh, took off again and was heading over to Stockton to have some repairs done to the airplane. There's a a depiction of the uh, of the flight, uh, the latter part of the flight, um, going to Nut Tree in Vacaville, and then over to Stockton, and then after the repair work was going to be accomplished or maintenance work, or whatever it was, they were going to do at Stockton. They were going to return to the East Coast where it's based. And uh, let's see. So let's uh, play a little bit of the live ATC video. I mean uh, audio, and uh, again, you'll hear the Bonanza. Flight, that'll be the first thing you hear, and then you'll, uh, well, that's the only thing you'll hear, and then the uh, com- conversation with uh, air traffic control. Total approach up, Bonanza 4853 Juliet. Bonanza 4853 Juliet, North Heard another aircraft on frequency, may have had some engine failures and end up in a field. Do you have a 7946 Charlie on your radar? I do not, for uh, November 53 Juliet, I do not have that uh, call sign on my radar. So give me the call sign, or yeah, give me the call sign again one more time. Called me on uh, tower frequency there. I'm going to hop off and come right back to you. I'm going to try reaching them again on uh, Unicom. November 46, uh, thank you. And uh, if you do just come back to the trick team, let me know what's going on. Will do. Approach 526, I don't know if it's related, but I'm picking up a faint uh, ELT. Uh, two six. Uh, yeah, we're getting that checked out right now. It appears uh, I just got a report from another aircraft that uh, someone had an engine failure, so we're trying to figure it out. Yeah, copy that. Uh, if you do anything, let us know. NorCal approach. It's uh, it's Bonanza four eight five three Juliet again. My current position. There's a B twenty five Mitchell that just landed in a field. And number five three Juliet. Number four eight five three Juliet. Roger, just uh, stand by and squawk 5313, ident, maintain VFR. 5313, we'll ident and we'll maintain VFR. We're uh, identing right now. Looks like they're okay, there's no fire or anything. Uh, I think it's on, it's gear up. From the 5328, ready contact about uh, four miles to the east of uh, the west of Stockton, Stockton, altimeter 2986. And uh, just stand by while I get some information from you. You said it's a uh, Bonanza that is landed gear up in a field. It's a B-25 Mitchell two-engine World War II bomber. Position here, are you able to get emergency services to them? No, 5 Juliet, we're working on that right now. Okay, just uh, 
I'm with them. I'm part of their crew. For sure. I'll probably hit the stock and see if I can get a car. Number five three is Juliet. Uh, Roger, just uh, stand by. Give me a couple of seconds, and I'll let you go uh, as soon as I can. Let me see if I can bring up my uh, my map on my phone. Get an address for you. Yeah, it looks like West Mueller Road and Will Hoyt Road. You said West Mueller Road and Will Hoyt. And number five three, Juliet. How many souls on board? Uh, three. Of the aircraft on the ground. Calling uh, emergency services right now. Do you want to stay with me or do you want to go ahead and just continue in the stock then so that you can get on their way to them? I'll uh, go to stock. November 5 3, Juliet, Roger Radar, so coming to slot 3, Park Cage Ride 60 is approved. And thank you for the report. And approach, uh, I'm on the phone with them in the B 25. They are injured. I see Juliet, uh, Roger, and uh, how many people are injured? Two. Juliet Roger, just remain in the frequency for now, please. And you can uh, just, uh, with any information that they give you, you can get the police and we'll let uh, my services know. Hey, Five Three Juliet Charlie, there's a police officer there. Uh, he is west of the airplane by about 300 yards. Five Three Juliet Roger. All right, there you go. There's the. Uh Exciting audio uh, there in the chase plane, giving the information. Thankfully, the chase plane was out there and was able to uh, locate the B-25 and help direct emergency services to the location. And now, the news reports say that the uh, injuries are not life-threatening. Um, I don't know if you call it minor or not. It depends on which report you're looking at here, but uh, the uh, a third occupant was not injured. Um, I'm hoping that it looks like, um, I, by the way, if you, I'll have a link to this in the show notes, uh, Juan Brown, the Blanco Lirio channel did a really nice video of this and he has got a lot of interesting information about the airplane and the fact that it had just returned. Remember we talked about on an earlier show, the, uh, world war II era bombers, um, or aircraft that were on the, uh, Essex LHD, uh, Navy ship that was heading over to Hawaii to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the end of world war II in Hawaii. Uh, it had just, that was one of the airplanes. Um, they had put it on a crane and put it on the, the deck of the, uh, LHD and it sailed over to Hawaii. They did the thing and they come back. So basically this is old glories getting ready to return all the way to its home on the East coast. And, uh, uh, let's see. So he had some other interesting photos of where the, uh, B 25 ended up in a plowed field. And if it hadn't been for that irrigation ditch, uh, it would have been a much better, uh, outcome. And, uh, doesn't, you know, it still doesn't look like there's a, well, I, I guess if you're looking at the engines that were torn off, I guess the damage is quite extensive on the engines, but I'm hoping what I'm trying to say is I hope that they'll be able to, you know, not scrap the thing completely and it'll be able to, uh, fix it, but I don't know. It's got a great history. I don't know. Uh, it looks Jeff. like a lot of wrinkling of skin. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It doesn't yeah. look great, does it? I mean, there are people out there who are willing to build a new aircraft or <laughs> build um, World War II aircraft out of a very small amount. Uh, and they, this, this is, you know, complete more or less. Um, so I'm, I'm sure that somebody who, who has got the money and there are plenty of people out there who loves this sort of thing, mm-hmm. will be able to fund it. But, uh, it's just, this is just a, a, a tragic 
uh, result, isn't it? Yeah. And I this hope- is just that time of the year when actually a lot of us are turning our minds to uh, the World War Two and uh, the heroic acts that occurred there. Uh, for various reasons in various countries. Uh, and it's just so sad to see one of those old bombers down. Yep, it is. All right. Well, uh, if you want to learn more information about this, and if we hear anything, we'll uh, update you as as far as the uh, condition of the two occupants that were injured and the uh, what they're going to be able to do with this uh, airplane. And check it out and in the show notes. Again, a lot of good links there. Uh, ATC um, audio, which I played and kind of cut out the extra stuff and kind of compressed it a bit, um, along with um, a B-25 training manual reference, I think, to the hydraulic system, um, and information about the 75th uh, commemoration tour in Hawaii, and uh, also information about the company or organization uh, that owns the airplane, seven four Hangar 743. So check it out. Oh boy. This is an interesting one. If you look at the photos that you'll see in the show notes, um, a Fokker or Fokker 50, uh, departed Mogadishu on a cargo flight to Belladwain. Is that right? Belladwain, uh, carrying four crew members and various goods on behalf of the Amazon. There we go the African Union mission in Somalia. After takeoff, the crew informed ATC about hydraulic problems uh, and was cleared to return. After touchdown on runway five, the aircraft went out of control, veered off the runway to the right, and collided with a concrete wall. Two crew members were slightly injured, uh, while both pilots were uh, seriously injured after the cockpit was severely damaged on impact. And uh, when you look at the photos, you'll see why the two pilots were severely injured because, I mean, there's not really much left of the front of the airplane. I was going to say, I don't, I don't see much of a cockpit um, remaining there, unfortunately. No. I don't know how they survived, survived that. Yeah. Absolutely. I can only hope that uh, the impact wasn't just so great, but, uh, geez, everywhere you sit has just been crumpled into a complete mess. I mean, it, it is so, uh, so stupid to... Um, damn great concrete walls in the perimeter of your airfield. Uh, you really need something that is uh, secure. So by all means, use wire, barbed wire, whatever, but make it frangible so that uh, if you do slide off, uh, you know, you don't ram into something that's immovable like this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or like a seawall at LaGuardia. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I don't know that you can make that out of wire. Yeah. <laughs> That probably, would, the water would probably the water would not be stopped by that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess there's some places where it doesn't. It may be the same case here because they got the sea just beyond that. Yeah, that wall. But it's just you know, think to yourself that concrete walls and airplanes do not mix. You do see in the second photo in the show notes uh, the uh, collapsed right main landing gear. I don't know if it was hanging out at all and then just collapsed when they hit the runway or if it never extended but uh, apparently i'm just guessing here of course uh, that when they touched down that uh, right main gear either collapsed or wasn't there to begin with and then the, when the right wing lowered um, it just kind of snagged the runway and sent the thing off to the right yeah but uh, hmm. yeah once that happens uh, you're pretty much a passenger regardless of where you're sitting don't hit that wall. watch out about the wall <laughs> ah. okay 
That was not actual um, audio. <laughs> <laughs> dramatic reenactment. That was a dramatic reenactment. Thank you. Ouch. All right. Uh, we'll move on to C. Uh, this is a Flybe E195 at Exeter on the 28th of February, 2019. They rejected takeoff due to haze on board as a result of maintenance. Uh, and then that prompted an evacuation. A Flybe Embraer ERJ195 registration, Golf Fox Bravo Echo Juliet performing flight 4321 from Exeter, UK to Alicante, Spain, with um, 100 passengers, five crew, backtracked Exeter's runway 26. Am I saying that right, Exeter? Okay. Uh, yes, you are, sir. Uh, for runway 26 for departure, uh, lined up for departure, was waiting for takeoff clearance. When a loud bang occurred, followed by haze developing in the cabin, the crew initiated an emergency evacuation of the aircraft via slides. A passenger sustained a serious injury, a broken ankle, as a result of the evacuation. A flight attendant, minor injuries, ankle injury. Was it purple haze? It was. Uh, Liz is wondering if it was purple haze. They don't really specify the color of the Flybe's haze. Flybe is purple. Flybe is purple. Yeah, you've got a point there, Liz. Um, yeah, but the, Prince wasn't on board, so we're probably all right. Yeah, so yeah, he's not been that gone. you know anyway. Well, yeah, no, well, maybe true. the this ghost. Twenty nineteen. Yeah. yeah, definitely not. Okay. The uh, airline confirmed the air. The airline confirmed the aircraft was evacuated after haze developed in the cabin. Okay, thank you. Uh, on the and this happened uh, when back in twenty nineteen February um, on the seventeenth of September this year recently. Uh, the AAIB released their final bulletin, concluding the probable cause of the accident was haze in the in the cabin. No, uh, <laughs> a lack of maintenance planning, training, and control of resources led to an undesirable situation where a maintenance task was allocated to an engineer who was neither qualified nor competent to complete the task. Ooh, ow, burn. <laughs> yes. Uh, no, they did not mince words no, there, they did they? Just... Nor competent. It was dumber than dirt. Um, a key step in the engine drying procedure was only described as recommended, and the engineer did not complete all the elements of the task. This resulted in residual cleaning solution remaining within the EC, ECS system, causing smoke and fumes within the cabin and cockpit and leading to an emergency evacuation. The engine drying procedure has been uh, since been amended to require this step to be carried out. Um, yes, Liz, go ahead and show the uh, evacuation. And no laughing. Yes. Now, while we're watching the video of the evacuation, especially at the back right-hand side, don't laugh when a lady kind of, well, you'll see. Boom. Bam. <laughs> she... Her feet stopped, but the rest of her kept going. Momentum. Yeah, momentum took over. There we go. Um, so a little bit of a passenger video of the of the evacuation. So as these things usually happen, the injuries are related to the evacuation, not the actual haze event in the cockpit. I mean, in the cabin. So let's see what else did they well, say? Well, actually, here? in both, because it happened yeah. in the cockpit as well. That's true. Mm. And that's not a good thing to have haze in the cockpit. Um, let's see. Passengers evacuating via the overwing exits reported that one. Oh, this is the interesting thing about this. I guess uh, several of the 
passengers evacuated over the overwing exits and uh, they were confused as to how they should get off the wing down to the ground because I guess part of the procedure is to lower the flaps to five degrees, I think is what they said here in the report. And they were they had placed the flap handle to the five degree position or whatever the appropriate position is for an evacuation. However, they shut down engines and I guess before the flaps actually extended to that point, um, the engines, basically the hydraulics weren't enough to continue the, the uh, extension of the flaps. Yeah, and, electric powered, I think. Or they're electric. electric. Well, something Quit. turned off. And um, so you have these passengers on top of the wings, and the flaps really aren't extended at all. And it's a pretty big jump from the, uh, the top of the wing to the ground. And uh, let's see, the passenger, let's see. So you have these passengers on the wing. They're confused how to get off. And then uh, passengers still in the cabin reported that this led to a bottleneck forming around the overwing exits. Two passengers who evacuated via the left overwing exit were able to jump down from the wing and assist other passengers to the ground. Despite this, several passengers commented that it was a very long drop to the ground and some landed awkwardly, sustaining minor injuries. Many of the passengers who exited via the overwing exits commented that the wing surface was very slippy. Or maybe slippery. And one fell over, resulting in a minor injury. The overriding comment from those who had exited via the overwing exits was that it was not obvious to them what they were meant to climb off the wing via the trailing edge. Uh, that they, let's see. I think I well, read there's that There's markings on top of the wing to indicate which way to go. Well, there oh. is, actually. Funny you that you should mention read. it. Go ahead. Look at them. I said you have to look at them or read them. Yeah, a 61-centimeter-wide walkway was demarcated at the wing route in black paint with arrows pointing towards the trailing edge. None of the passengers mentioned noticing this, but several did mention a lack of instruction, support, or guidance once they were out on the wing. Huh, I wonder if they actually looked at their little safety card. That probably (laughs) showed what you're supposed to do when you get out on the wing. Probably not. I'm just guessing. Uh, several passengers commented that they found the rear slides very steep and were surprised by the speed at which they slid down them. The slides at the rear do not round out at the bottom, unlike the front slides, which means that individuals slid very fast onto the ground. Yes, we saw that. This and attempts by passengers to slow themselves in the slides were the principal causes of the reported injuries. Two passengers assisted other passengers as the, at the bottom of the rear slides. A number of passengers suffered minor cuts and grazes, and one elderly passenger who had exited via D2R, I'm not sure what that means, D2R, the back right door? Right. Yeah, yeah but what's D stand for? Door. Hmm. Oh, thank you. <laughs> She says that like, duh. I mean, that's what I door. assumed. If I'm not correct, Idiot. someone will tell us here in a minute. Yeah. But door Thanks, to, Steph. right? Yeah. You're welcome. I'm, I'm here to be helpful. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Two cabin I'm crew members. <laughs> sorry I asked the question. <laughs> Two cabin crew members who exited via the rear slides, one carrying the megaphone and the other carrying the first aid kit, reported that this made it difficult to slow themselves down, and one sustained an ankle injury. Uh, let's see. Cabin crew noticed that some passengers hesitated when instructed to jump and slide. Are you kidding me? <laughs> they therefore advised the passengers to sit and slide rather than jump and slide. All right. Um, bum, 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 bum. When the cabin, I was crew- just yeah. Oh, sorry. Just watching that video. I'm not sure that many of those people had been on a slide in many years. Yes. Or ever. Confu- or ever confused <laughs> as to what to do on How a to slide. Do the slide. 
that yeah. is a reason then here's here's a public service announcement ever i think what would you say once a year everybody should yeah, go just to like playground playground or a, like a water slide park or mm -hmm. water park whatever and just go down the slides just kind of reacquaint yourself with what yeah. it's like to go down one it's fun too it's fun it's yeah ah, let's see uh, the AAIB reported with respect to the flap setting, a review of the DFDR data confirmed that the flap selector lever was moved from the takeoff setting, flap one to flap five. Although I think I may have said five degrees, sorry, five, flap five. So that's probably a lot more extension. Although the yeah. flaps started moving in response to the selection, the engine one and two selectors were set to the off position approximately two seconds later when the flight crew shut down the engines. That, oh, you're right um, about the power. It's electrical power. This removed electrical power to the flaps and prevented them from traveling to the selected position. In the flap one position, the flap angle had been 6.9 degrees. The flaps reached 7.2 degrees before stopping. So that's not a lot of deflection of the flaps. No. So there you go. I mean, in their defense, uh, they because they hadn't really got going, they had already done a lot of the evacuation checklist items. And they said, uh, although the actions are supposed to say uh, confirm flap five, which suggests that the they you're required to look to see if they've got to flap five, uh, uh, other people would say, well, it just confirmed I've selected flap five. Um, it, it's not really uh, unambiguous. And uh, in training, they said the, their evacuation is most often practiced following a rejected takeoff uh, where you've got a certain amount of time while you're actually coming to a halt in order to do some of these actions, which usually included selecting a flaps to five. Yeah. That's one of those automatic react, uh, reactions when you're rejecting a takeoff, go ahead. You know that you're going to need the flaps set to the evacuation position. So in most cases, and when we do it in the simulator, you know, the first officer is usually already extending the flaps to that position. So by the time you've stopped and you shut everything down, they're probably in the proper position. Yeah, and this is just one of those uh, occasions when you highlight a possible uh, uh, change that can be made to the checklist, and I've no doubt that uh, the company uh, Embraer is it uh, yes. will. Uh, yeah, they will look at this and possibly rewrite the check the checklist to uh, make that clearer. Yep, we are always learning from these. Yes, we are. Life is school, right? Hmm. Mm hmm. <laughs> every day every day is a school day <laughs> may i may i say that steph is being particularly passive aggressive today just wanted to make note of that <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll we'll get to the reason for that later on <laughs> oh wait Ding. we have at least 50 percent going on so far well, hey Yay. all right we'll <laughs> destroy that in just a minute here oh, i'm yeah. sure yeah. Well, don't worry i thought i better get it up early <laughs> oh thank you liz said she's she thought she'd get it up early before we go too far down <laughs> the hole. Okay. Whatever you say, yeah. Liz. <laughs> uh, <laughs> moving on. Item D. Uh, crashes. Uh, and this is a report regarding the uh, 737 MAX crashes of last year. Um, let's see. March 10th, 2019, the Ethiopian and the uh, Lion Air. And that was actually in 2018, wasn't it? The uh, Lion Air crash. Okay. Um, 
On September 16th, 2020, this is from the Aviation Herald. On September 16th, 2020, the Committee on Comité on Transportation and Infrastructure of the United States House of Representatives re- released their final report of 238 pages into the safety cultures of both Boeing and FAA, which led to the crashes of both Lion Air's Boeing 737-8 MAX and Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 737-8 MAX. And we're going to go ahead and read all 238 pages on the show. So go ahead and grab something to drink and get comfortable. Here we go. No, we're not going to do that. We're just going to kind of summarize. I was kidding, Steph. Don't leave. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Come <stay>. back. Thanks. <laughs> uh, let's see. Time for a culture change. Both Boeing and the FAA share responsibility for the development and ultimate certification of an aircraft that was unsafe. Both must learn critical lessons from these tragic accidents to improve the certification process, and the FAA must dramatically amplify and improve its oversight of Boeing. While the changes that the FAA and Boeing have proposed will be the start of a long process, changing the fundamental cultural issues that led to an environment that permitted Boeing to build and FAA to certify a technologically faulty aircraft will take much longer. And, uh... Again, we're not even going to read this whole summary here, obviously, because it will take some time. But uh, basically, they say, do things right and do the right thing. And so what they didn't do right was put this MCAS system in to begin with. And the the fact that they did not do the right thing by removing references to MCAS from the pilot's flight crew operations manual, manual without question, it was not right for Boeing to fail to share with the FAA Boeing's own test data showing that it had taken a test pilot more than 10 seconds to respond to uncommanded MCAS activation, and the test pilot believed the condition was catastrophic. Nor did Boeing do the right thing when it became aware that the AOA disagree alert was not functioning on more than 80% of the 737 MAX fleet, and then failed to alert the FAA, its customers, and MAX pilots. Well, it continued to both manufacture and deliver an estimated 200 airplanes with this known non-functional component. So the, basically, this report from the um, Committee uh, on Transportation and Infrastructure of the U.S. House of Representatives basically is uh, spanking big-time Boeing and the FAA, which we've all been talking about ever since this all happened, Right. Yeah, very much so, Jeff. Uh, and th- there are some pretty um, impressive uh, statements here, really, uh, which um, you know, just sort of zero in on the the errors uh, that were made and uh, what the company needs to do, really, to uh, straighten itself out. And I have absolutely no doubt it will do that. Uh, I think this culture will... Uh, have changed dramatically uh, in the future, and it will only uh, mean that Boeing is a, a much safer and uh, a more capable company uh, to move forward. Some say that the uh, the shift in culture occurred when Boeing uh, basically bought, took over McDonnell Douglas merged with, and they went from a great engineering company to a uh, focusing on being a great business, and that has resulted in what we have now and many people are hoping that they can turn this thing around and make boeing the the once what what it once was a a very very great aviation engineering company 
So this is really just a uh, legislative committee kind of uh, report or detailing what they they found. It doesn't really have any uh, specific guidance for change at the moment, just things that they know need to be changed. Correct. Okay. Yep. Yeah, because uh, that falls to the FAA and other agencies. But, you know, here you got have a problem. The FAA was really complicit in a lot of the Mm -hmm. problems here, and they're the agency that's supposed to fix this, right? So, So, yeah. Checks and balances, make sure things get get changed where they need to be. Absolutely. In the show notes, we'll have this uh, along with a link in this report to the final report of 238 pages. If you... Some light bedtime Some reading. Some light reading. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, Chris, that's perfect. MBGA. Make Boeing great again. <laughs> we'll get some hats. <laughs> All right. Um, here's an interesting one. And I say interesting with like, yikes. Airprox incident. Boeing 737-8AS. Uh, Echo India Foxtrot Romeo Yankee on the 2nd of October, actually are two <laughs> 737s here, and they were both Ryanair flights. Let's see, here's the narrative. On Tuesday, the 2nd of October 2018, so a couple of years ago, uh, an aircraft pro- aircraft proximity event occurred involving Echo India Foxtrot Romeo Yankee and Echo India Delta Whiskey Whiskey both 737s as they were flying level at flight level 340. Both aircraft, go ahead and Liz, you can throw that up there. Both aircraft were in the airspace of Madrid ACC sector PAL, although one of them had been transferred three minutes earlier to adjacent sector ZGZ. This means that during the conflict, each aircraft was in radio contact with a different controller. Aircraft one, Echo India Foxtrot Romeo Yankee, call sign uh, Ryanair 55 Charlie Bravo, was heading southeast en route from Santiago de Compostela in Spain to Palma de Mallorca in Spain. Aircraft 2, let's see, Flight 1192 was heading northeast en route from Seville to Toulouse. Both aircraft were at the same flight level, flight level 340, on converging headings. Uh, A short at 1454.36, a short-term conflict alert, STCA, Uh, should have appeared for the two aircraft. This alert, which is displayed about two minutes before the minimum required separation is breached, was not generated due to operational problems. That's all it says here. I don't know what that means. Um, I don't know if the system didn't generate it or if the system did generate it and nobody noticed it. Uh, I don't know what the operational problem is. Operational is a pretty broad word. It is. Encompassing all of operations. Yeah. Who knows? Good, Good point. At 1455.42, so about a little bit more than a minute later, the Bordeaux ACC controller notified the PAL sector controller of the conflict between the two aircraft. Judging by his reply, the PAL controller had not detected it. Ooh, what? (laughs) At this time, the aircraft were still level at flight level 340 and 8.7 nautical miles away. Immediately after finishing the conversation, the PAL PAL controller called ZGZ to correct the situation. The ZGC controller also had not identified it. The PAL controller said, do you want me to lower my uh, Ryanair Aircraft 1 to 33 just in case? To which the ZGZ controller replied, yes, please. 
the PAL controller then radioed Aircraft 1, would you be so kind to descend to level 330 for a while? I'm afraid there's some other traffic at 34, flight level 340, by your right. This new cleared flight level was not entered into the label, so something I think that the controller would do to kind of, you know, um, indicate that he gave them clearance to a new flight level. Just a few seconds later, the ZGC instructed Aircraft 2 to descend immediately, level 320. The controller changed the label to reflect the new cleared level. So now they're both coming out of flight They're both descending. They're both descending. Not good. And they're continuing on a collision course. Uh, No heading change, just altitude change. Yep. Um, Aircraft 1 then contacted the PAL controller again, requesting confirmation of the instruction after seeing the other traffic descending on their TCAS display. Both controllers then concluded they were both requesting their flights to descend. Hmm. At that time, they were within 5 nautical miles and 1,000 feet, meaning the minimum separation was being violated. Uh, A confusing situation developed in which both controllers then requested Aircraft 1 and 2 to maintain flight level 340. Okay. Yeah, comedy oh, of horrors here. At this 14, can't be worse. Well, yeah, they didn't. Well, it could have, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, it didn't, thankfully. They're still around to talk about it. Yeah. At 1456.47, a TCAS traffic advisory, TA, appeared in Aircraft 2, separated at that time was 3.9, 3.9 nautical miles and 278 feet vertically. Aircraft 2 acknowledged ATC's instruction to maintain flight level 340 while changing its selected flight level from flight level 320 to flight level 340. At uh, about 10 seconds later, the controller informed the crew of the presence of traffic to the left, and the crew confirmed it had it on the TCAS. As a result of the ATC instructions issued at 1456.41 and 1456.46 to maintain flight level 340, Aircraft 1 maintained its altitude. Aircraft 2, which was descending, stopped doing so and began climbing again, reaching a positive climb rate of 544 feet per minute. Their flight paths, which were once again converging, and they were all they always were actually, meant that 13 seconds after the TCAS TA was received, both TCAS resolution advisories, the RAs, were generated, uh, which remained active for 43 seconds. Aircraft one received a climb RA, while aircraft two received a descend RA. That's the way they're supposed to work. Uh, the crew reported the TCAS RA to ATC just as the aircraft were at their closest point of approach, 2.3 nautical miles and 334 feet. Uh, after being cleared of conf- or clear of conflict, both flights were recleared to new altitudes and continued their respective flights. Wow. Quite. They were polite. They were very polite. Yes, would though. you uh, be so kind as to... Uh, <laughs> Would you be because um, you'll probably be going to die soon if you don't? <laughs> and that's a lot of words for yeah. instruction. So yeah, it looked like because they weren't on the same frequency, that was probably the biggest factor in this, right? Um, two separate controllers, two separate airplanes on a con- converging course uh, at the same altitudes and descending at the same time, and then climbing back. The same time. And the controllers aren't communicating very clearly. No. I mean, uh, they're not they're not being precise about exactly what they're going to do and what they want the other controller to do. And of course, they're doing it by landline, um, different languages, uh, you know. And all the time, these guys are converging and they're going up and down, up and down, and uh, no one's really getting a grip of the situation. 
could ju- thank the Lord for TCAS. Exactly. There's a, mm-hmm. a great Did what it was <laughs> example of why TCAS is so important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Couldn't, didn't manage to confuse the computers, thank the Lord. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good thing they followed those RAs. Yeah. All right. Well, that was an interesting one, I thought. Yeah, I think extremely interesting. I have no doubt there'll be a lot of retraining going on there. Yes, yeah. I believe you I, are I, correct. Regardless of whether they're talking to different controllers or not, you think they would have noticed? Um, yeah, or you would hope that at least they could see the nearby traffic if they weren't talking to it. Anyway, mm-hmm. yeah, you'd think, right? Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of, that was interesting in a negative way. Here's an interesting one in a positive way. Uh, flying V model completes its first flight. And this is from avweb.com in partnership with Dutch airline KLM Delft University of Technology. TU Delft has successfully flown a scale model of its flying V airliner concept for the first time. The remotely controlled model weighs in at 22.5 kilograms, which is 49.6 pounds with a 3.06 meter or 10 about a 10-foot wingspan. The flying Can't carry v- many passengers. Then. No, it's very, very, very small people. Oh, okay. Yes. Uh, and very, we're, they're looking for a lot of very, very small pilots. As well. <laughs> uh, the Flying V, which integrates the passenger cabin, cargo hold, and fuel tanks in the wings, is designed to be... Well, hang on a minute. Does that mean you're going to be sitting there and there's going to be fuel sloshing yeah, don't around worry about the, and cargo the, falling on your head? The That's cargo's going to get all wet with fuel. It's going to be very strong smell. It's, it's not really... You know, they haven't really thought the video? of it. There's a few issues to work through. So. <laughs> well, hang on. Let's, we'll look at the video here in a second. Okay. Um, uh, one of our... Because I think I have uh, audio with the video. So, um, yeah, just in case. Uh, one of our worries was that the aircraft might have some difficulty lifting off since previous calculations had shown that rotation could be an issue. <laughs> That's not good, said project leader model. Rolf Wolfs. The uh, term, the team optimized the scaled flight model to prevent the issue, but the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You need to fly to know for sure. According to TU Delft, the Flying V will offer a 20% reduction in fuel consumption over the Airbus A350. Whoa, That's 20%? Significant. While carrying a comparable number sure. of passengers. As previously reported by Avweb, KLM announced wow. last year that it would be funding the development of the Flying V. Along with KLM and TU Delft, Airbus is also involved with the project. And now um, we'll have a link in the show notes. So you can watch this video, and we're going to watch it right now. Go ahead, Liz. These are very serious people here operating the model. Five, seven, nine, eleven, thirteen, fifteen, eighteen, twenty-seven, thirty-six. Hike, hike, five. In the air. Wow! <laughs> That's impressive. Lift off. That is. That's what she said. Twenty-five. Fifteen. <laughs> They're just yelling numbers. I don't know. They don't really have any bearing at all with anything. The airplane. Oh, we should probably describe to the audio podcast people. Uh, the airplane has just lifted off from the runway. It's a model. Uh, we we're watching these guys fly the model. They're very, very intense and and serious. Probably because they spent a lot of time building this thing and they don't want it to crash. It really is a V, isn't it? I mean, it's not so much a lifting body. We, well, it is a lifting body, but it's 
it's so blended fused around just beautiful uh, yeah it was worth putting in all of the hours making sure everything's correct and built properly built accurately wow uh, and it pays off nice flyby i think we're all happy happy that that we succeeded and achieved the goal of flying the flying the flying feet got oh. enormous winglets yes I was wondering if they were supposed to be uh, folding wings and they forgot to put them down. <laughs> Maybe. Mm. I don't know. Looks pretty cool. Um, very, very inspiring music, uh, Liz says. Uh, very dramatic. But I think the best thing about that video is that very cool desk thing that the guy has his laptop computer on. I'm going to have to get one of those. And it's like a big one of those so that you can be like out in the field. <laughs> walk around with my laptop. My laptop. I could do a podcast walking around. <laughs> That's all right, Stephen. They're going to use a circular runway so there won't be any crosswind. Yeah, Stephen's saying, I would like to see the crosswind limits on this thing. So, yeah. I don't know. Uh, what's really concerning to me is that that uh, their worry was the aircraft might have some difficulty lifting off since previous calculations had shown that rotation could be an issue. <laughs> well, and then did you see how it, it rotated? Yeah, it went like from zero to 30 degrees. No like, Whoa, that was two seconds. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Pip says they have high vis jackets. They must be good. <laughs> the mark of a true official. guy that picks up my garbage. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now. Oh. Well, they're probably <laughs> no, no. good too. I'm just saying. Just saying. <laughs> just okay. get your high vis, you know, vest and a clipboard. Yeah. And yeah. Go anywhere and, you want. Anyway, interesting concept, um, I think. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if this, you know, scales up to like real airliner size stuff. Yeah. Or not. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, we were echoing, echoing, echoing. I'm sorry, Jen. I didn't hear any. I that was that. Uh, maybe because we had our little microphones up while we were we were making very interesting comments about the video. <laughs> appropriate. Very I thought it was just me at first, and I was trying to fix my audio setting because the. Uh, yeah. I didn't hear any echo. But no, neither did I. I did oh. at the end there. Definitely heard echo. Okay. Well, some people did, some people didn't, but uh, whatever. And it's something that I'll probably will not fix in post. <laughs> it wasn't a huge deal it okay was fine. or something i'm going to say that i'm going to fix some post but i'm not going to not right there we go. lie i'm going to lie i think we've yes. acknowledged it and we could just <laughs> yes. move on we've acknowledged yeah, that's, that's all we're required to do all right and with that <laughs> what oh yeah here we go on the screen we have this wonderful graphic that uh andy um, did for us. Um, one of our great community members and a very artistic person. There's a, uh, it's a, uh, what do you call it? A, a rosette. Yeah. But it's like a, like a, it's an ribbon, award, like an award, award ribbon. ribbon. Yeah. 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 Uh, that says APG 50% guarantee. All right. That's enough of that. Let's get over to this before we get ourselves into any more trouble. And that of course is getting to know us why wouldn't you want to get to know us <laughs> don't answer that question <sighs> and the wonderful graphic compilation of pictures and thank you nick for taking out the one that i had the single finger salute yeah i put myself there instead yes i noticed that very nice 
Anyway, um, so let's uh, talk about what has been happening with everybody. Let's start with uh, Steph. How about? Hmm, what's been happening with me? Um, when did we do this last? last I think week? last Wednesday. Wednesday. Same time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's just been kind of a, a normal week. Not a whole lot um, going on. Um, we had a whole bunch of, I think we were talking about last time, a whole bunch of rain the day after we recorded from uh, Sally. So it definitely rained a whole lot. Um, made for kind of an easy work day. Turns out people don't like to go to the doctor and travel through a lot of torrential downpours. So huh, that's that kind of a, yeah, that happens sometimes just any inclement weather. It's like, you can expect a bunch of no-shows. Mm. Um, no big deal there. Um, it was actually kind of a nice day later in the day outside. Spent some time down on the uh, on the dock and just enjoying the cooler temperatures because it definitely cooled off a whole lot here. Um, not a whole lot of skydiver flying this weekend because um, it was beautiful out, um, sunny, not a lot of clouds, but really gusty, variable winds, which don't lend themselves to parachute operations very, very well. So um, went down there and then kind of came back early on Saturday and discovered that um, the bilge in the boat down on the dock had stopped working. So the Uh-oh. boat was trying to sink actively, uh, <laughs> fix that problem. It was and, trying to, uh, but it didn't trying to. It did not actually sink, but <laughs> was, was making a very good, a very convincing attempt at sinking. Um, fortunately, it was only sitting in like, three feet of water so it wouldn't have gone very far was but. there any like screaming going on when you saw the said boat no i just went no? mm, well that's a bummer no, that's not good Should probably <laughs> do something about that <laughs> yeah and um yeah just normal normal life stuff i don't know um not anything terribly exciting wish okay. i had more to well oh, i was gonna tell you why i was overly uh passive aggressive at the start of t- today's show is Why? so in contrast to, I started talking about last Thursday when it was not a very busy day at work today was not so much. And it was just very, it's kind of a trying day. Let's just uh, say that lots of, uh, um, I don't know, just lots of patience buttons being pushed all over the place. The patients tried your patience. It tried. Well, not even so much the patients. Let's just say, yeah. Oh uh, yeah. Got people, people were, yeah. And then you had to come to this and then people like me even. Well, and I'm just trying to, you know, you try to like reset your mind and this is, this is where I want to be. This is, this is fun. This is enjoyable, but yeah. somehow some of that still. Oh, I understand. A little bit, I was just, so. I was just kind of, I think it's fun when you're, when you're like that. Saucy. As long as you're not like that all the time. No, 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 no. And I'm, I'm better now. I've recovered. I just, Good. I was, I was kind of I was like hungry and like, oh, you know, yeah. hangry a little bit. And, hangry. Yeah. 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 Why should I be bothered to do this stupid show with you fools? That's what she's thinking. I saw the no, little thought. Not bubble. at all. No. Not at all. It was exactly. Well, that. we're glad you're here and you're in a better. No, glad mood. to be here. Glad to be chatting with you guys. Glad to be talking some aviation stuff. Yes. It's always fun. Nick, how about yes, yourself, sir? sir? What have you been up to? Uh, not a great deal. I was really looking forward to being with uh, Adam at the Ducks for Day show on uh, Sunday. Yeah, and yeah, and of course it was cancelled because of the new COVID restrictions. Mm. So uh, that didn't go ahead. So that was a big disappointment. Other than that, I've uh, uh, been for a rather, pardon me, painful dentist visit, which mm. was not ideal. Getting over that, and um, the only nice thing that's happened really uh, is uh, is I've acquired 
this, which for those of you who are listening to the podcast, you cannot see. It is a titanium uh, blade from an RB211, uh, which is the engine that powered the tornado, which I flew, the last uh, fighter. It was an RB211? Yeah. That's what powered uh, the L-1011. Ooh, well, there you go. Wow, that's a big engine. Yeah, two of them. Wow. Anyway, nice. uh, so uh, I saw one. Uh, there you go, from a tornado. I saw one, and they have uh-huh. uh, made a hole in the end of it so that it can open beer bottles. So I have oh, a very fancy a fanfare, bottle fanfare. opener, and I'm going to oh. use it for the first time. No. Okay. So Wait, hang, on. Titanium hang on. Blade. Before, before you do, before you do, I have to what? set this up. Um, uh, Liz is telling me, directing me that I need to have something to. Oh, like, right. Okay. Okay. Tell me when. All right. Um, now. Hooray! It worked. Woohoo! It's still in one piece. It hasn't bent yet. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, that was a really nice purchase. And I've now got another beer to drink. So that's great. That's the best thing that's happened to me all week. Uh-oh. Glenn is taking umbrage mm-hmm. to the RB211. Oh, is it not a 211? I don't know, mate. What's an RB something? Yeah. Well, what, what is was it, then, it Glenn? Uh, Glenn, don't just say it didn't do it. <laughs> what? You know, haters going to be haters. Yeah. Man. Come on, then. <laughs> Tell us what it was. <laughs> Somebody let us know. We have all these people in the chat room not doing a thing. Come on. Look it up. What is it, Stuff. I don't know. RB199. <laughs> <laughs> That's what Google maybe says. A 210? Maybe 210. Rolls Royce Vulture V. A Vulture V. It says Rolls Royce Vulture V. Oh, what the heck is Vulture that? Vulture V. What's he on about? I don't know. Darn it. We just dropped below the 50%. Well, that's fine. I don't mind that. Dang it. I'll go with RB199. RB199. That's funny. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, it was advertised as a tornado engine. I didn't uh, look to check. Well, you know what? I think it is. I think it did come from the tornado. And that's the way <laughs> it's going to be. And nobody can change it. All right. 199. There you go. Um, all right. Well, that's a very, very distinctive bottle opener for sure it is i uh maybe you can take a picture of it and we can throw it in the show notes so people can see what you're holding up uh, i've already tweeted it oh okay never mind then if you don't already follow nick please do follow him on <laughs> twitter or is it an apg crew that you put it on uh no i have my own twitter oh, you're on you're on twitter you're on twitter Okay. RB RB199 powers all variants oh, of the tornado. There you go. RB199. I thought yep. I got I thought you really I thought you guys were making that up. No. <laughs> I told you that's what Google said. Oh, well then Google knows. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Right. Very good, very good. Anything else, sir? How uh, bowling is no, over? No, I've been shot down in flames. It just actually <laughs> demonstrates entirely my interest in the tornado because it was the <laughs> yes. worst fighter I ever flew, and I really didn't take much interest in it at all. We know that you love that airplane, Nick, no yeah. matter how much you protest. Exactly. <laughs> no, I didn't. I hated it. Horrible airplane. <laughs> We have a Doesn't lot give of a crap what kind of engines powered it. <laughs> yeah. 
I am offended. I am offended at airlinepilotguy.com. Crap engines, crap airplanes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, let's keep this thing moving. I've not done much of anything at all. I did my singing over the weekend at the masses and such, and um, been starting with the computer-based learning and Ooh, uh, trying to get myself prepared exciting. for training coming up uh, next month. And um, last week, I got to meet up with Armando for lunch at a Cuban place. And just today, just literally hours ago, I met up with Armando again uh, while he was here in Atlanta, had just come in from an overnight flying uh, venture. And uh, we uh, had a very nice lunch. And uh, so it's always good to see him. And uh, he's been contacting me basically because he just he wants to leave the PTUK and just doesn't know how to how to broach the, the news, subject yeah. or break the mm. news with him. And oops, oh no, you don't think there <laughs> any of them are listening to this show, do you? Nah. Okay, good. No, good. Yeah, they, they don't listen. <laughs> just kidding. We're not poaching him. Uh, so anyway, always good to uh, see Armando when he's um, here in Atlanta. He spends more time there than he does in Charlotte, I think. Uh, or at least. No, nah. uh, maybe. No. No. Yeah. Anywho, um, that's that's pretty much it. Um, hey, there's Nev in the Facebook chat room. He's not happy. Uh-oh. Nev is, uh-oh, he's in the Facebook chat. Nev, um, one of the BTUK hosts, and you put in um, hashtag, hashtag awkward. awkward. Yeah, it is. Sorry, Nev. <laughs> hate to break it to you this way no. <laughs> oh his lawyers are going to be contacting us okay Uh oh yeah now we're in trouble anywho that's it not a lot going on in these covid times and um i think we should move on coffee time coffee with? time oh yeah we should do the coffee thing. coffee fun thank you the coffee fund johnny how much more coffee no thanks I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the John and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Jeff Smith, for the uh, APG Java Jive. And we're singing that because we have something here called the Coffee Fund. That's your way to support the show in a financial way if you have the resources to do so. And since the last show, we have some folks who did that indeed. Recurring donations from Chris Randall and David Lieb. And a one-time big donation from Thomas McCaffrey. Wow, thank you. He... uh he just blew us away with a very, very, very generous contribution. So thank you, Thomas, for that. Very much appreciated by all of us here at APG. Um, and also, the other way to um, contribute to the show, that was the classic fund. Uh, we have the, or classic method, we have something called Patreon. You can become a patron of the show. And since the last show, we have a new patron, a new producer, John Weber. So thank you, John, for joining up via patreon if you're interested in joining this great group of folks head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee and join this group you'll be glad you did
Incoming message. Thank you. All right. The feedback portion of the show where we try to answer questions from our wonderful community. Um, the first item. Now, many of you have been asking about Dana and Dana has been busy uh, learning a new jet, the 737 to be exact, new generation. And he just returned from his um, IOE or operating experience uh, trip um, last week. And he told us he was going to sit down and record some audio for us to talk about the airplane and some of his training experiences. And I believe that he's going to be sending in uh, three separate audios. And here's the first one. And let's uh, let Dana take it away. Well, hello there, APG community and Captain Jeff and crew. I'm uh, submitting some audio feedback to give everybody an update how things have been going and uh, want to let everybody know that took the time to write in and, and send, me, uh, send me emails and, and, and audio uh, feedback and everything. I really do greatly appreciate everybody's support in the community. And boy, I'll tell you what, I miss everybody and I love every one of you guys. So anyways, a little update as to what's going on. I think I'm going to try to make this into a, a three-part series. I'm try to keep it right around 10 minutes each part because because there is quite a bit to talk about um, on the uh, training and how it went, so uh, let me uh, you know give you a little high level um, high level uh, uh, overview as to how the training program works, and that is uh, step one is uh, the home study for the systems knowledge. Uh, step number two is uh, learning the uh, procedures, uh, which is include the uh, um, flight deck checklist procedures. Uh, and flows, also how to use the MCP or the remote control panel, better known as the autopilot, and then also uh, learning how the FMS in on the 737 works and how it's integrated um, and different than what we what I had uh, experienced on my previous equipment. And then uh, after that, we go into what's called maneuvers validation. Uh, maneuvers validation, uh, basically learning how to fly the airplane uh, with uh, uh, stalls and steep churns and, you know, sea fit or control flight into terrain or uh, uh, TCAS or terminal uh, Terminal collision avoiding system, which means that makes makes uh, <laughs> makes it so that you don't hit other airplane uh, airplanes. It's using the internal uh, 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 radar to go ahead and interrogate other aircraft to uh, keep you uh, separated. I'll talk a little bit about that as well uh, a little later on. Um, and uh, basically doing uh, your low instrument approaches, your single engine approaches. That's all in the uh, part of the. Uh, maneuvers validation. Then you go to your LOE or line um, uh, oriented um, uh, environment. So basically, you're flying uh, kind of like a four day trip between cities, and that's where you're, you're running some checklists and uh, emergency procedures and making sure that everything's coming together. And then you have uh, in each section you have an evaluation. So you know ESV and electronic systems validation. Um, you've got a procedures validation, a maneuvers maneuvers validation, a OE or uh, LOE exam. So it's um, it's 
the big one. That's actually when you get your type rating, but that's when you do a point to point and something happens between the two. Uh, and then the last one is when you do your line check. So it's five different uh, check rides that you have to take. Uh, but anyways, enough about those. Let me, that's kind of a high level, uh, overview um, and I'd like to talk about each individual section a little bit in detail uh, and I'll start off with talking about the systems uh, and the worldwide operations systems on this aircraft uh, actually you know because this aircraft was designed back in the 1960s it's roughly in its 50th year uh, in uh, operation it's originally a short haul uh, designed aircraft off the 727 uh, airframe um, with, you know, of course, obviously the wing slung uh, engines. Uh, the systems, I think, are pretty much almost the same as they were when they designed the airplane. Uh, as a matter of fact, most of the systems are not as automated as they were on the uh, 88 even. Uh, however, I mean, to give you a perfect example is the electrical system. On the MD-88, when you turned on the auxiliary power unit uh, and made sure it was online, well, then it would have a priority and, and it will come over and, and the APU would power the airplane and then when the engines came online with the engine generator the engine would automatically be switched from the apu and vice versa on this airplane that is not the case at all the 737 is a manual airplane so you have to manually switch uh, the power sources uh, and, it, and that applies to several different systems that I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail so you know if, if I was to say you know the biggest party pooper part of the uh, the, uh, uh, the 738 I would have to say that the systems are very antiquated when they could be far more um, far more um, user friendly or modernized or or um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't even, th and I'm not editing this folks. I'm, I'm not. So I'm just <laughs> kind of going through and shooting off the hip. Nothing is even, even written down here. So anyway, so any, it, 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 as far as the systems go, uh, just that if it was, uh, a little more, uh, user-friendly in, 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 in automatically switching, uh, power sources would be great. But anyways, enough about that. Uh, the, um, Next thing was something that I found very interesting because I have, have had zero exposure to it, and that was the worldwide operations, and that is uh, talking about uh, operations in mountainous terrain, talking about uh, flying down into Central and South America, uh, flying in the waters route, which is a basically it's just like a, a transoceanic route, except for you're flying between the uh, New York metropolitan area, the Northeast for the most part, uh, down into the Caribbean. So you're not ETOPS because we're within an hour of our, our an alternate airport at all times. However, we are not in a radar controlled environment. So that was very interesting to learn about. On all this, the systems and the um, worldwide operations, I had to do on my own via computer. And that's what I used to teach. That was the 12 day course that I used to teach uh, before um, uh, when students came to the old way of teaching now it's all based on computer so i did that all on my own it took me roughly about 22 24 hours worth of work on the computer to get that done before i showed up then um so you show up and uh did my uh, differences on the boeing they give you a, a, a course that kind of gives you an introduction to the fms uh on the boeing and also the uh, mcp and mode control panel uh which is really nice it, Kind of, it was kind of a an extra bonus to start learning about uh, the differences. Um, 
before they put me uh, you know in the trainers next thing was the electronic systems validation which i take basically a computer exam with all the work that i've done make sure that i've done it properly and i passed that and i did uh, that's enough about that um, and then um, we're on to procedures so procedures basically is really three parts. It's really the FMS, learning how the FMS in, in it works with the airplane. Also, how the MCP, remote control panel, how you use that to fly the aircraft. Although we're not flying, we're just doing procedures now. And then the last one is the uh, check checklist and, and flow policy and procedures. Okay, so the flows are, are huge for an airline pilot. So when, when we're doing checklists, for example, a pushback checklist uh, or pre-flight checklist, let me just go back to the first one, pre-flight. All right, so we set the cockpit up. So there's a flow that we do, and then we verify that we've done all the procedures with uh, the proper uh, uh, flow and then checklist uh, verification. Well, Every aircraft is slightly different, although we all do flows. Every flow is different on each aircraft, so or aircraft type. So it, it takes a little bit of work to learn how those flows uh, work, and uh, that is uh, you know five day process. We you know it's just not overnight, and takes a lot of work on 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 my behalf uh, outside of the uh, training world uh, to go ahead and do a lot of that memorization because it's rote memorization of where your hand needs to go at what point. And, uh, and, and do what it needs to do. In other words, flip the switch to make the system work as it's supposed to. Uh, and that is, uh, yeah, that was a, a, a challenge and made it through that uh, pretty well. I think uh, I think it was uh, uh, probably the hardest part of the course for me. Although they don't have official flows, uh, they have recommended flows on the aircraft. Uh, it was uh, still a challenge for me to get to get my left hand working again as a first officer um, and also getting my uh, thought pattern down to the new aircraft. Uh, so anyways, we take all that for over five days and we kind of, uh, you know, start off with a checklist and that's, you know, pre-flight, pushback, engine start, taxi, uh, for takeoff, after takeoff, and then after, you know, uh, approached and landing, then after landing, and then uh, uh, shutdown. So that's what we focus on. Then all in between, even though we're really not really flying, because we're in a flight training device at that point, um, we are just uh, pretty much focusing on checklists and flows, but we also put in using the FMS to um, load up routes and uh um, get familiar how the FMS works and then also how it interacts with the remote control panel. That's uh, where we're at in the um, when we're doing, doing our procedures. Um, and one of the best things I noticed, or one of the nicest things I noticed about this aircraft, beyond the um, the flight displays, which I'll talk a lot about later, um, is that the FMS where, with the 88, which the FMS on the 73 and the 88 are very similar, except the FMS uh, on the 737 has the ACARS, or how we communicate with the outside world, uh, integrated into the FMS, which allows us to upload all of our uh, performance data, our routes, our um, uh, weight data record, or, you know, our takeoff numbers, uh, all into the into the FMS, and just with a few pu pushes of button, and so that's uh, that's how the uh, FMS works, and uh, the uh, mode control panel, uh, MCP, um, 
it is uh, not very different from the 88. That's, you know, I, I, with with fear of going into detail on how it works, it's it's basically the same thing. Great VNAV, great LNAV. We don't have to worry about what's it doing now as much, but still, you know, you get trust and trust, but verify uh, with the uh, with the autopilot system on this aircraft. And I'll talk a lot more in detail about the autopilot system as we go through, especially uh, later on in training. Anyways, uh, so it the uh, maneuvers the. the uh, um, procedures uh, ends up with a procedures validation at the end. Make sure that you're pro- progressing as prescribed, and that is that you understand how to uh, operate the systems on the aircraft. That the, you know you operate these proper switch at the proper time, or roughly thereabout, and uh, then you um, continue on uh, after that with the next two sections, which would be maneuvers val and. Uh, Maneuvers Val in LOE or line operating experience, which I'll talk about here next time. I've already gone over the 12 minutes. I said I was going to do 10. I'm trying to keep it somewhat short for the show. Uh, so I promise you I'll, I will uh, go ahead and uh, get a couple more of these out over the next uh, couple weeks just to update everybody and uh, tell everybody out there that uh, I do miss everybody and I hope everybody's well. I know we've got this uh, worldwide pandemic still going on and uh, well, I guess COVID-19, right? Well, everybody's gaining weight. I guess I gained that 19 pounds. Anyways, uh, hopefully I can take that off soon. Anyways, I will talk to everybody soon. I hope uh, everybody's doing well. Thanks for listening and back to you, Jeff in the studio. Well, thank you, Dana. Great to hear from you. And thank you for keeping us up to date with uh, what you've been going through the last month, month and a half. Interesting stuff. By the way, uh, you talked about the ACARS integration with the uh, FMS system and the 717 actually has it like that as well. Yeah, kind of. It's going to be nice to be able to just uh, upload directly from ACARS all that data that the company sends us. Ah, uh, modern technology. Yes. Except not really. Well, <laughs> modern My phone works better than that. Yeah. Well, it's not as serious with all that Garmin yeah. G10,000 or whatever it is in there. <laughs> mm. Do they even have a 10,000? A million. One million. G1, one million. <laughs> no, just 1,000. 1, G1 million. Oh, oh okay. Well, G1, just a couple thousand. extra zeros. <laughs> But Anyways. still, uh, yeah, it's great to hear from Dana. Um, interesting to hear what he's going through and uh, wishing him, of course, the best of luck uh, with the rest of his conversion. Yeah. Hope that always. He hasn't mentioned the cockpit size, did he? Did he? Oh, no, he didn't. That's so perhaps he's fitting in it better than he hoped. Mm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe he'll mention I that. I think hopefully that'll be a, a subject of an upcoming feedback from Dana. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. yeah, it's just that you are Crazy listening to Liz. <laughs> oh, you're hearing Liz again? No, I was talking and you like were giving me a weird look. No, uh, because I'm looking at your video and your video is not synced up at all because you're like talking, but your mouth isn't moving. And thinking, oh, really? Well, how is that happening? <laughs> yeah, it's completely out of sync. I don't know. You want me to leave <laughs> and come back? I could try. No, you're for, fine. It's synced up for me, so I don't know. Um, okay. No, just just keep going like this. Constantly. <laughs> I was going to say, chew some gum. Yeah, chew some gum with your mouth open. 
<laughs> then it won't be so disconcerting. I'm going to leave. And come back <laughs> Just and kidding. We'll see if that helps. No. Hey, look. No, no. The next item's for her. Oh, Don't yeah. Leave. You can't go anywhere, Steph. This next item is especially for you. This is from Henrik. 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 Sorry. Uh, the Bicycle Repairman. And uh, let's see. Uh, hi, APG crew. I've been listening to your show since around episode 200 Ooh, for a while. And I've also gone back and listened to all the episodes from episode 001. Uh-oh. Oh, Uh-oh. no. So I'm guessing that means oh, I'm suffering from the infamous syndrome. Yes, you are. <laughs> I have, uh, however, never sent you any feedback. Why not? But I thought it was about time. Yes, you're right. I don't have anything to do with the airline industry. I don't either, actually. Don't tell anybody. But my granddad worked for Scandinavian Airlines for many years. He worked as a technical advisor and lived in Seattle and L.A. during the 60s and 70s. I'm sorry. I thought Scandinavia was just to the east of me. I didn't realize it was out in any America. Well, I'm getting confused now. I guess maybe they flew out there. No, wait. When he was in the 60s and 70s, he worked closely with Boeing and McDonnell Douglas. Oh, oh, okay. I don't think. Well, maybe Scandinavian was in Seattle and L.A. Did they fly? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You're making things difficult, aren't you? (laughs) Do my best. (laughs) Okay. So I've always had a big interest in airplanes. I'm fortunate enough to work in an industry that has actually benefited from this whole COVID business. I own and run a bicycle shop or workshop in Stockholm, Sweden. Is it a stockbroker? Is it a quantity surveyor? Is it a church warden? No! It's Bicycle Repairman! Bicycle Repairman! Thank goodness you've come! (laughs) I beg your pardon. Is well, that what she said? I, I, uh, I, I'm just reporting. <laughs> just reporting. Um, he actually included a link to uh, that was from Monty Python's Flying Circus, a BBC comedy series starring Graham Chapman, John Cleese, Eric Idle, Terry Jones. Dot dot dot. Come on, is there anyone in the world who hasn't heard of Monty Python? I, I wouldn't think so. But they've you been know, living under a rock. You know, they're the these new kids. They've probably yeah. never heard of Monty Python. New kids don't listen to us, mate. No, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, and they're smart. Anyway, we've never been as busy as we have been this year as no one wants to go on public transport anymore. Anyway, the reason I decided to finally take the plunge and write to you is that last week, the Swedish Accident Investigation Board, or uh, Stutton's Hover Commission, if Captain Jeff is feeling brave. Yeah, I give it a shot. SHK. The Stutton's have a royal commission. I think I actually. Oh, here. Thoughts have a commission. I recorded that earlier. What? Um, that was me. That was my voice. Like it. <laughs> that was one of that those. Was dreadful. That was one of those computer things. You know, like Google Translate. Not not. Very oh, good. I could do better than that. But yeah. Well, I'm not okay, you to. give it a stab then. No, I thought your you yours was good. I couldn't oh, okay. improve on that. I thought you were great. Well, I have one for you later in this. I think. No, that's another feedback. Never mind. That's true. Um, Let's see. Uh, Anyway, this commission, the Staten's released the final report on a crash that occurred in northern Sweden last year. It involved a Gippsland or a Gippsland? Not sure. Uh, Gips, I think. uh, I think that's what uh, they called it in California. 
Okay. Gips. Gips. I don't. Gipsland GA8 air van. Well, let's just call it an air van with one pilot and eight parachute jumpers on board. He calls them a jumper, parachute jumpers on board. Yeah, I wasn't taking any umbrage with the oh, word okay. jumper. Well, don't don't they get it's, no, it's never the mind. dumper. Yeah. <laughs> well, they dump. They dump out. Um, uh, they uh. crashed, and unfortunately, no one survived. Here's a link to the aviation safety report. Accident, Gippsland GA-8 Air Van SE-MES, 14 July 2019. And he also, oh, that's if you want to read it in Swedish. And there's also a link that we'll have in the show notes uh, for the re- final report in English, which will be a little bit easier to read for people that only speak and read English. Um, let's see. I thought it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, especially Dr. Steph, as she now seems to enjoy flying around, throwing people out of the airplane. Okay. That was not me. I didn't say that he did Hendrick. So yeah. And, uh, I used to do the same, generally after I landed, (laughs) throw them out of your airplane. Now get out, get out. Now get out. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for the fantastic show and for keeping me company on my commute to and from work. Cheers. Henrik, the bicycle repairman. All right. Take it away, Steph. Yeah. So let's, um, I think we did talk about this last year when it occurred. I think so. Uh, Yeah. I'm sure we did. Um, I'm just going to revisit it here slightly. So basically um, this, uh, so I'm not really familiar with the air van, but it looks like a very short caravan kind of. Definitely um, similar types of uh, of operations, I would I would think. Um, anyway, this uh, this was a parachute flight. Obviously, they went to an altitude of thirteen thousand feet, I believe. Um, and I'm just going to skip to the salient points here. It says just over a kilometer from where the airport or from the airport where the jump point was located, uh, the airplane suddenly changed direction to the left and began descending rapidly in almost the opposite direction. And this was in conjunction with uh, decreasing airspeed with the airplane's approach to the uh, jump point. So uh, basically what happened was, is that it went into a fairly steep dive with an angle of over 45 degrees broke up in the air as the uh, airspeed and G-forces exceeded the permitted values for the airplane. So um, in a nutshell, that's that's what happened. No one uh, was able to survive this. Uh, unfortunately, the jumpers were not able to get out uh, just because of the way of uh, the, the airplane lost control. So uh, let's see here. Contributing factors. I'm going to come down here real quick. Um, the control of the airplane was probably lost due to the low airspeed and the, and that the airplane was unstable as a result of a tail-heavy airplane in combination with weather conditions, heavy work ro- workload in relation to the knowledge and experience of the pilot, limited experience and knowledge of flying without visual references, and changes to the center of gravity probably led to it being impossible to regain control of the airplane. So... Um, They give a couple of uh, other factors probable to the cause of the accident, lack of safe system for uh, risk analysis and operational support, including data for making decisions concerning the flight, Um, lack of standardized practical and theoretical training program with approval of a qualified instructor, lack of a safe system for determining the center of gravity prior to and in conjunction with parachute jumps. So, um, yeah, basically what what happened here is... um, 
just the way the aircraft was loaded was not, uh, it doesn't sound like it was uh, within the CG envelope. Um, so it was tail heavy, got slow and stalled and was not recoverable, uh, which is actually something that we worry about a lot because um, you have people in the plane moving around, they're preparing to do their jump. And in a lot of these jump aircraft, or the, well, we'll say all these jump aircraft, the door is at the back of the airplane on the side. Um, it's not always just one person getting out or a couple people getting out. Sometimes large groups of jumpers get out all at the same time, um, which can be really, um, you have to know that in advance. You have to know what people are planning to do so that you can modify how you're going to do jump run accordingly, what speed you're going to be at, um, making sure that the aircraft is configured appropriately. Some aircraft do need to have um, flaps and, and certain settings so that you can have uh, the right um attitude configuration so that you don't have people hitting the uh, elevator or horizontal stabilizer or anything like that. Uh, there's a lot going on. There's a lot of workload to, to deal with. And that's why I've been doing a lot of, um, you know, most of this past summer has been a lot of training for this stuff. It doesn't um, necessarily at first glance seem like you need a lot of training to do these types of operations, but really there's a lot, a lot, a lot of stuff going on in a very quick period of time too. So that's, that's certainly something that we think about that we worry about. You have to know how you're loading those aircraft. You have to make sure that you're within the uh, weight limits, weight and balance limits within that CG envelope and um, and make sure that it's safe for everyone involved. So, but yeah. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like um, reading on that they, they had done this configuration a number of times and assumed it was safe every time they did it, hmm. whereas they didn't actually do a an independent check each time. It was a case of, well, it worked last time with this number of people on board. Let's it'll it'll be fine. Whereas in fact, they might have been very close to the limits on several flights, and it was just this guy with his limited experience and the fact that he was high, high altitude might have been suffering from a little bit of hypoxia. Yeah, um, I think they mentioned he actually tried to go higher than he initially requested because of um, the clouds. Clouds. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. a lot going on. I just I, I just think his experience perhaps wasn't up to it. Once he lost control, the damn thing came apart very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So really, really tragic, but it kind of highlights the, you know, the need for uh, folks who are doing this type of flying to be, uh, you know, the requirement here in the United States is to have a commercial certificate. So, yeah. you know, roughly 250 hours, um, which is not a lot of flying experience. And depending on where you're going to be flying, there may or may not be different um, training uh, involved with that depends on the, the operation and the type of aircraft that are being used. And um, I said, I feel very fortunate and lucky that uh, there's been a lot of training and a lot of emphasis on safety where I've I, I can't read exactly where in this Steph they mentioned it, but uh, they had uh, parachutists up in the sort of hat racks. Uh, in the hat racks? I don't think yeah. this airplane has hat racks. Well, yeah, it had kind of, uh, yeah, it had areas where huh? you would put luggage. And well, the they have people lying. Like hats when they jump. I <laughs> did not know about that. Yeah. That would well, be I, I was, very I'm, unusual. So <laughs> a lot of times we have. So here, you know, um, uh, uh, parachutist jumpers are allowed to sit on the floor of an aircraft, provided that they have a restraint belt um, that has to be worn for taxi takeoff. And if you're going to, if they're going to land with you for any reason uh, for landing. Um, but uh, yeah, sitting up, I, I, I'd, I'd have to dig I don't into even the, I don't even know how you'd manage to do that. And that doesn't even sound like something you'd want to be doing with a um, skydiving rig on your back because you want oh, okay. to protect your handles and um, any any points where you might allow the parachute to become 
Perhaps I perhaps I was thinking of something else, but I felt sure. But okay, no no problem. Well, I mean that that begs a question for me, um, Steph, with your yeah. experience. Um, where does everybody put their hats? <laughs> your helmet goes on your head, and yeah. you strap it before you get on the flight. Oh, okay. So you don't need to rack them. Okay. No, no. Gotcha. You Thank can't you. take it off after you get through fifteen hundred feet. <laughs> well, uh, Liz, 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 stop it. Oh. So <laughs> I hope that that kind of answers. Can't hear her. <laughs> yeah, I can't hear her. But I hope that kind of answer answers some of Henrik's um, curiosity about this. But. Um, yeah, those things are just really super important, especially because there aren't too many other operations kind of like that, where you're going to have a lot of shifting of your um, payload or cargo at uh, relatively low-ish speeds. Um, yeah, it's, it's very important. Yeah, well, it's tragic. Nine yeah. people. They're really, really this. sad. Yep. Very sad accident. <sighs> yep. Oh, Glenn in the chat room says, will we hear Liz later? Yeah, well, maybe not. <laughs> Depends on if she's in the mood. Yeah, I don't make her do anything. She doesn't want to do. She's the boss. She yeah, she's the boss. Dictate her terms here. All right. Um, item three feedback this is from JJ, the Pittsburgh one. JJ Pittsburgh. Uh, this question is for the lovely Dr. Steph. Not that you aren't all lovely. Oh, thank you, JJ. I know planes used in general aviation flying, like any planes, have different ranges they can fly with their fuel capacity. I was curious, what was the furthest distance you've flown on one flight? And I guess he's talking about private flight GA. Have a great mm -hmm. show. Peace and love, JJ. Thank you, JJ. So I, I was trying to think back after I got I read through uh, JJ's uh, feedback here. Um there have been only a handful of kind of long-ish flights. Um, I don't know that. I know a lot of people out there do use do uh, general aviation flying to go from point A to point B, commuting or to get to you know various vacation spots, things like that. Um, I've always been more of a go up, poke some holes in the, the sky, shoot some approaches, take off landings in the pattern, and, and that type of stuff. Relatively local flying. Have done a handful of longer cross-country flights, and I think the longest I actually did was one of was probably the first one I did. Right, not too long after I got my private pilot certificate, I took a flight from Eastern North Carolina all the way out to Asheville, which was I guess two hundred and seventy nautical miles in a Cessna one seventy two, and that was a bit of a long flight, at least on the way there, because I um, the day I was able to go and weather was was good for it was actually fairly strong headwinds. Um, so if you didn't have to deal with a lot of, of wind, you could probably do it in two and a half, two hours, 45 minutes or so. I think it took me closer to three. Um, but he, you know, he asked a little bit about fuel plan or uh, fuel capacity. So I want to say, oh, someone's going to correct me on this because it's been a long time since I've flown that particular model of 172, 172N model, I think has uh, 21 and a half gallons per side. So, and I think 40 total usable gallons um, and fuel burn of around, I don't know, call it, uh, if you're going to be conservative for fuel planning, you can certainly do it a lot leaner, but I would call it eight or nine gallons per hour just to, to be on the safe side. So, um, yeah, more that's, than, uh, more than hmm? four hours then more than four hours. So, so not even getting close to the, the, you know, potential range there. Um, but then also taking into account, you know, you want to make sure you've got your, um, climb fuel, your cruise fuel, your descent planning, all that for your, your fuel calculations. Um, 
using those different performance charts to take that into account. And then also make sure that you're complying with um, uh, fuel requirements for the type of flying that you're doing. So VFR daytime flying, make sure you can fly to, you have enough fuel to get to your destination, fly for 30 minutes afterwards. If it's at nighttime, that's uh, same requirement, enough fuel to get to your destination, obviously 45 minutes um, there afterwards. And if you're doing instrument flying, um, enough fuel to get to your destination, shoot your approach, be able to fly to your most distant alternate that you have listed, and then for an additional 45 minutes. So obviously you're going to need more, more fuel in those cases, potentially. Which will impact your potential range then. Exactly, exactly. Um, other longer flights I've done, um, I don't think any of them were over three hours, really. Um, Winston-Salem to St. Simon Island, Georgia, and Winston-Salem to, uh, where'd I go? Salisbury, Maryland. I think those are the only other two flights approaching that same same distance well, that I've done. Lane uh, Street and Chris Griggs in our live audience are saying <laughs> that fuel is not always the determinant when it comes to range and endurance. Yeah, Lane says the same thing. Uh, sometimes you need to get out and uh, use the facilities. So yeah, the bladder, uh, just your, your own bladder, your own fuel. Uh, just take a piddle pack and throw it out the window. There you go. <laughs> Yeah, oh, there's there's various uh, methods to. to by the way, I'd just issues. like to uh, try and get some credibility back after my uh, RB199 uh, debacle earlier, sure. and say um, uh, this: we're referring to the previous story. Mm -hmm. There are several images from flights where parachutes, at least for a short time, uh, have been located on the baggage shelf in the airplane before the jump. And it was also reported that this took place during the previous flight, despite yeah. it not being permitted. Oh, so, so also, they, yeah, that's that's unusual. Um, <laughs> um, crowned themselves in, yeah. uh, in the, the, the hat racks. <laughs> so I was actually going to bring this up too because uh, we had already mentioned Chris Griggs here about the fuel endurance, but he also um, apparently was uh, did ride in a GA8 at one point. He said there was a cargo net at the back, which is actually similar to the Kodiak, and we do not allow jumpers to sit there for specifically for this purpose because okay, it be so, but it's okay to put your woolly jumpers in the hat rack. As long as they don't weigh very much. Yeah. <laughs> Write that down, Liz. Woolly jumpers in your hat rack. <laughs> oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. I assume we're talking about the sweater, not the, uh, not, I don't the know. not the not the furry, how woolly your jumpers not the furry are. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, not the very hairy skydivers. <laughs> we're not going to pick on those folks. Hairy skydivers. <laughs> that that seems better. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay. Uh -oh. <sighs> well, thanks, Steph, for answering these GA related questions oh hey, wait more ga oh no look at this hey this is from stan hello apg crew this it's been great to hear more from liz lately uh dr steph i'm still catching up to you on the multi-rating and flying those jumper dumpers sounds like a lot of fun <laughs> i it is this is stan that said that not me <laughs> stanimal he calls himself uh captains jeff and nick thank you for holding it down particularly with the witty and detailed breakdowns of aviation news. Let's just think about that for a minute. Yeah. I'm read that again. Particularly with the witty and detailed breakdowns of aviation news. Revel in it, Jeff. <laughs> I'm Revel reveling in it. it, yes. And, of course, the plane tales goes without saying. I can't miss them. 
Miami Rick, I'm aiming to be a freight dog and hoping to work for Ameriflight and eventually fly something bigger after that. I miss Dana and hope he's doing well. Well, we just heard from him uh, first time in our feedback today. So he's a very uh, strong part of our APG community and we're always great. To, it's always great to hear from him. Anyway, so hey, wait, I got to get this ready here. So cue this up. Next sentence, I passed my CFI check ride today, and I'm excited Ooh. to begin teaching at Sling Pilot Academy soon. Yay! Yay. Congratulations. Hang on a minute. Sling Pilot. Is, oh, that, no. is that like a is that jumper? Like a woolly dumper? jumper? <laughs> <laughs> you sling him jumper, out. <laughs> sling the pilot. No, because he, he's going to be able to tell us all about those interesting sling aircraft that we had some feedback on not too long ago. And No, I'd speak. rather, I think I'm going to call you a pilot, sling though. pilot now. You sling, sling those <laughs> parachute jumpers out of the, the airplane. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the Buddha rudder, sling them out. <laughs> Yes, you're right, Stuff. It's a South African company, uh, an airplane called Sling. Um, Thanks again for all the work you put into the show. (laughs) Yeah, just continue to think that we put a lot of work into this. Actually, we do. Thank you, Stan, and congratulations again for your CFI rating. That's Mm -hmm. awesome. That's a a tough rating. That's what I've heard. It's a very long check ride from what I know about it. Cool. Any check ride's a tough one, but that sounds like a really bad one. Yeah. All right. Uh, continuing on, Ahmad sends us this. Hello, APGers. Hope all of you are doing well. My question is for Captain Nick, because he flies into and out of Lagos. A, uh, did I say that right? Lagos. Lagos. Darn it. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, just. Do you want to redo that? Do you want to start again? Yes. I know that. Oh. All of you are doing well. My question is for Captain Nick because he flies into and out of Lagos, a tropical city, and London, a temperate city. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wait, I messed that one up too. Shoot. Among many other places. I know that the transition altitude for North America and Europe is 18,000 feet. I would like to confirm from Captain Nick if the transition altitude for tropical cities in Africa, like Lagos, is 3,500 feet and the translation transition level uh, FL 50 flight level 50 or 5,000 feet. The reason I'm asking is because I have sampled a few old approach slash departure charts for Lagos, which I saw online, which show the transition altitude as being 3,500 feet and transition level being flight level five zero. I should indicate that these charts, while using a lot, possibly all, of the data from their real-life counterparts, were meant for Microsoft Flight Simulator 10, uh, which shouldn't be used for real flight since some details may have been altered. If this is true, that means soon after takeoff from places like Lagos, Port Harcourt um, of Abuja, flight crews need to reset their Q&H settings to the standard 29.92 figure, that's 29.92 inches of mercury on reaching 3,500 feet and or flight level 50 feet, right? Any idea why the transition altitude is this low in this part of the world? Thanks a million. Always yours, Ahmad Dan Hamadou, Abuja, Nigeria. That's an interesting one, Ahmed, and uh, a very good question because uh, I really honestly hadn't really given it much thought. I always found it very awkward having a very low transition altitude. And for those who aren't familiar, we fly around the world 
up there high in the sky with every airplane on the same altimeter setting so that when they come together, they're at the same relative heights uh, so that there's no confusion over uh, I've got my altimeter set to a different pressure setting, so I'm going to become come perhaps uncomfortably close to someone thinking I'm at the right height and I'm not. Okay, so up there at high altitude, we always use a standard setting, which is based on the standard atmosphere. But, of course, when you come down towards the ground, you want your altimeter to read accurately in relation to the ground. And in civil flying, we set our altimeters to um, a pressure setting, which gives us our height above sea level. Now, of course, we know that the pressure all around the world varies from region to region. Sometimes you only need to move 20, 30 miles, and uh, it will have varied a bit um, because the atmosphere is full of high pressures and low pressures that causes our weather and uh, air movement, etc. Um, so it's important that we have the right setting on an altimeter for an approach to landing. Now, at some point, we have to change from the trans, you know, the standard setting above down to uh, the Q and H, the uh, pressure setting for uh, landing. Uh, and a lot of air uh, countries, it's at a reasonable height. I say reasonable. Uh, the UK is around uh, 6,000 feet. The States is 18, uh, etc. Um, but you know, there are some countries where it feels uncomfortably low. And the only reason I say that is because it's usually quite a busy time of the flight when you're getting down to the last few thousand feet, setting yourself up for an approach, uh, sorting everything out, make sure the cabin's secure, doing all your checks, configuring the aircraft, etc. And uh, I like to get those altimeters set early just so I don't forget them because, quite honestly, it's a very important setting to make sure your altimeter is reading correctly for the approach. And three and a half thousand feet is actually quite late, quite close to the ground mm -hmm. when you do it. But uh, the fact is that Airbus very cleverly have a database uh, and uh, it reminds you to, if you had forgotten, which hopefully you hadn't, to uh, reset your altimeter. So I never had a problem in the Airbus. It was, uh, it was very fine. Uh, why is it so low, though, in uh, Nigeria compared with other countries? And I went, oh, actually, I'm really not sure. Perhaps they're just being awkward. <laughs> I've wondered about that myself. Thinking, why? Yeah, likewise. So, of course, uh, when I get difficult questions like this, I seek the oracle. And which means I climb a high mountain and I uh, put out offerings exactly right. And I spend days meditating and then I ask the Oracle for um, some information. And the Oracle, whose other name is Adam Spink, um, came back to me with a whisper in my ear and uh, reminded me, I should have known this already, big professional pilot, that the transition altitude is always fixed at, you know, uh, 3,000, 6,000, 18,000, whatever it is. And the transition level is the lowest flight level, and that's with your standard altimeter set for use above the transition altitude. This usually means that the lowest flight level is at least 1,000 feet above the transition altitude. So uh, the actual flight level, of course, because it's a standard setting, um, depending on the pressure of the atmosphere that's moving around, goes up and down uh, a little bit as the pressure changes. But it doesn't really matter when you're at high level because you're not close to the ground.
Uh, but there's usually a bit of a gap between the transition level and the transition altitude because the transition level will float up and down depending on the pressure of the day. So, uh, right. Adam has never... That's... Oh, here we go. Yes, yeah, yes. So we're supposed to hold our fingers. The and that, this is the oracle right. music. Uh, this is what that's very Nick good. heard when he contacted Adam. A- and what's more, it was written on tablets of stone which popped <laughs> on my head. Very painful. <laughs> that sounds very painful. It was. So uh, Adam has never personally seen transition level published on a chart. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, depending on the chart designer, um, precisely because it will vary. Uh, and it's usually in the ATIS, the airfield information that we get transmitted, particularly if it's different to a standard. So it will vary. Uh, so my guess, he said, uh, the is because the charts are designed for flight sim and you don't get all the information we do in the real world. Um there is a minimum transition level for use in Lagos, so they would never say have flight level four five or flight level four zero, even though it might be a thousand feet above the uh, transition altitude to avoid confusion. But why is the transition altitude so low? The three thousand five hundred feet. Why is that so low? He thinks it's to do with uh, the terrain. So he says the height at which you change to standard pressure, um, passing altitude 3,500 feet. Now, some areas apparently in the UK have it as low as 3,000 feet. I'm used to London where it's six um, as the transition altitude. My understanding is that back when these things were designed, the transition altitude was determined by terrain, and uh, only a f- very few mountain tops in the UK touch 3,000 feet. And I'm pretty sure uh, Nigeria is pretty flat as well. But my feeling is to make sure that everyone's on a pressure setting that keeps them clear of terrain or they can read their altimeters in relation to the mountains that are around and make sure that if they're um, at the right height, they won't bump into a mountain. Uh, That's why they fly on altitude uh, on Q and H when they're close to the ground. But once you're above three and a half thousand feet in Nigeria, it's considered safe enough to switch to standard setting and you'll move your altimeter to the standard setting and carry on about that because there's no particularly high terrain. Now, Ahmed can, of course, come back to us and tell us if there's any high terrain in Lagos that we're not aware of that might defeat that. But that in is the theory. That sounds like a reasonable theory to me i bet it didn't go on too long no i was i was mesmerized <laughs> um so i guess that makes sense like what, what are the highest um uh elevations uh, here in the u.s stuff would probably be the rockies like um pike's peak and Got fourteen thousand, fourteen thousand something yeah, other. multiple fourteen thousand foot peaks so that in, makes sense uh, that eighteen thousand would be um a reasonable, reasonable altitude um yeah but I guess in Alaska, though, there are some that go up to 20, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, Denali uh, yeah. is so that would That would make sense that it is uh, related to the terrain. Yep. Uh, and uh, Masha says that uh, in the Netherlands, and we all know the low countries is called that because it's very low. <laughs> oh, really? There's a reason um, about the low countries. <laughs> uh, is 3,000 feet. Oh, wow. Um, Mike, Mike Kuyper's, um, 
ever the the joker he says if you're if you're going by terrain you don't need a plane uh <laughs> <bam>. <laughs> very funny i might point out that the procedures uh, uh on airline have uh when i left um had changed so that you didn't actually set your altimeters as you passed the transition altitude and the climb out as soon as you were allocated a flight level you changed it then so you could be well below the transition altitude well, yeah. but if you were given a level flight level to climb to you immediately change your altimeters at that we point. have to do it pretty relatively close to that level because if you do it too early and then they decide oh oh there's some traffic over there i need you to stop at seventeen thousand. Or something like that then you know you may forget to go back and put in the local altimeter setting and then have some issues with being at the proper we, altitude none of us like issues yes <laughs> makes a mess yep okay good discussion so thank you adam and thank you Ahmed. yes thank you mm-hmm. both gentlemen with names that start with an a <laughs> yeah. anderson that starts with oh, an and a. anderson too well, mm-hmm. it's right. the a team Yes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> the A-team. Triple A. <laughs> okay. Uh, Gus, speaking of A, in Argentina, um, you see a theme here. Uh, I hope everyone is doing great despite this world pandemic. Here we are going through day 171 since the initial lockdown and aviation, commercial and GA, is practically paralyzed since then. Luckily, I've been able to do some local training flights on my Piper Arrow, but everything is very restricted by the aviation authorities. Only local GA training flights, pilots, not students, cargo and humanitarian flights are allowed. It's so sad to see so many or so few airplanes in the sky. Going to the matter of my feedback regarding episode 440, I just wanted to congratulate Captain Nick for nailing the pronunciation of all Argentinian city names included on the plane tales. Wow. The band played on. Good job. Yay. Okay, where's the applause? Here we are. I'm talking my full luck. Thank you very much indeed. Appreciate that. All right. We got the 50% guarantee uh, banner up. Thank you. Okay. Uh, let's see. Also, I have a question I was willing to ask. Oh, I have a question I've been meaning to ask for a long time. How many APGers are there listening on a regular basis? Not many. Are you willing to share some rough stats? No. How many in the U.S., Latin America, Europe, Asia? I'm just curious, and I think this would be very cool to find out uh, more people listening near me. I guess there is a way that I can go in and look and see. I never do because... You know, I don't, we don't have advertising here, so I don't have to prove to anybody, you know, like how many listeners we have and how many downloads we have and all that kind of stuff, because we have you great folks contributing to the coffee fund and that's all I care about. And, uh, but, uh, I don't know, maybe I should have probably looked at that before I read his feedback on the show. I didn't realize he was asking me that question until now. Uh, I guess I was just stunned by next the show. next show. Yeah. Update. Maybe next show. Um, I'll, I'll have some stats, at least maybe some percentages or whatever. Um, podcasters don't want to, you know, I think Lane has the answer. In. What do you say? 42, a uh, 42. Yes. Uh, 33 the meaning of life, the universe and everything. And also exactly. 33 is another number. That's good. 33 and 42, depending on the country. So just under a hundred. Okay. Um, but, um, perhaps we'll get back 
to you with that? I think he's hoping to find some know, people or, down in Argentina that he yeah, can yeah have uh, an have Argentinian meetup. Meet if that's but, the case, I'll I'll uh, give you the exact stats for Argentina. You know where where a good place is to discuss some of those things? Slack. Um, Slack. Yeah. I don't know if uh, I don't recall if Gus is on Slack. I think he is, but if not, listen to the end of the show, Gus, and then you'll hear Halal speak of the 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 world the Slack. of Slack. And, and all if the you Slackers. also happen to be in Argentina and would like to Ooh, connect like with Gus, that. Argentina, yeah, Argentina. Um, also listen to the Slack instructions at the end of the show. Yes, and then you guys can guys and gals can get together and uh, do a meetup and then record it and then send it to us and then we can play it on the show. That'd be fun. All right. Enough that. Thank you, Gus. Uh, Liz, you, um, About eight minutes or so. Okay. Um, yeah. Let's run this one from Stefan. And he sent us some audio feedback. Hello, APG team. Hello, Jeff. Hello, Mayme Rick. Hello, everybody. Hi, Liz. This is Stefan from Germany calling. And, uh, well, I'd like to give you another feedback. Feedback because you played my feedback in episode 441 and you were asking question. Question how I am doing, how European doing, and how the A380 is doing when not flying. Well, personally, I can only speak for Germany. And as a A380 captain and no A380 flying anymore, I'm, of course, grounded. And right now, my company put me on a, some kind of uh, paycheck protection program. I think is that what you call it in the USA? It's a program where the uh, unemployment insurance is paying most part of my salary through the company. That means... Um, I'm still employed, everything is okay from this part, and my company's getting money from the insurance to pay my salary. Um, I think in the States, it's a rather new thing. Um, they put in force with uh, COVID-19. In Germany, that we have that uh, for a longer, longer time already. I think we kind of mentioned it. I'm not sure about that, but uh, social security is, even though we are European Union and uh, Lots of common regulations, uh, the social security thing, every country is different. So that's my program. I'm probably grounded for two years if my company is not uh, in putting me on another aircraft um, or, well, other thing happens with an international carrier which cannot fly internationally anymore. And, well, about the A380, yes, it's a sad thing that it's properly not flying anymore. Uh, so much around and i recently asked with an airbus engineer about this situation he said well yes a380 is a big loss for the company a huge i mean financial loss for the company for airbus but they uh the uh, got a lot of knowledge while building the this aircraft a lot of knowledge development techniques for the materials for the composites and all that stuff and all this knowledge went into the a350 which is of course quite successful and uh, he also told me an interesting thing it's uh, about boeing and about the grounding of the 737 max and stopping all the production line he said that well they're very worried looking about uh, in direction of boeing because Boeing had to stop its production line. They 
had a lot of time to renewing, building all the production line, um, making it uh, very efficient and very new again. That's something what they couldn't done with the A320. They're building that now for, what, 30 years, and they're still using the same production method, which is which are not always very efficient, but it's very expensive to hold or stop a production. So they say, well, every crisis has its good part, and Boeing should be able to make a good thing out of it by making now the production much more efficient as it is like an example for the A320. Well, anyhow, I hope you're doing well. And uh, about the gin, well, I have different gin in my mind next time when we see us, hopefully, eventually, whatever. And uh, lots of tailwinds and all that good stuff. Thank you. Bye-bye. And thanks for the great show. Thank you very much, Stefan. That's exciting about the gin. <laughs> yeah, soul gin. Love it. But maybe we can uh, exchange um things in person at some point in the future i'd like to meet you in person that'd be great oh uh, no don't don't oh no okay oh <laughs> never mind yeah wow think, i'm not sure it's gonna ever happen apparently <laughs> oh, no. joking. stefan's a wonderful bloke very funny yeah. uh you have a highly motivated uh a great chap to uh you know have a beer with uh, and a wonderful time up uh, chatting to him and everyone else uh, when I went uh, to Germany to uh, join them all for a, a day. Was that the the Christmas markets or something like that you went? Or, uh, no, no. Uh, oh. We uh, all oh, went you had a- to uh, Frankfurt, I think it was. Okay. Ah, and I uh, right. had a day uh, wandering around air traffic up on the balconies, photographing, oh, that's right. and that's uh, then a tour around the airport in a bus. Uh, oh, yeah. Et yeah, et yeah. That's right. It, well, it really was a very nice day. Marcus was there. and uh, oh, except for that. And then. In fact, Mark has organized it, quite honestly. It was good. Marcus? Who's that? No, I'm just yeah. kidding. <laughs> Marcus, we're just kidding. We're joking. Um, Sorry, he doesn't listen to this. Yeah, that's good. Good thing, huh? Yeah. He only he only, re- he only only listens to high production shows. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very the professional quality, ones. The quality shows. Yeah, yeah. the quality shows. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, Stefan mentioned that um, I screwed up <laughs> the um, Twitter handle. For a young lady named Yuki C. And at the end, there's an OXO. And I tried to make it all her name. Apparently, that's not right. Uh, the OXO, he says, stands for hugs and kisses. <laughs> Whoops. I don't know. How would I know that? I don't know. He's a, She's a, um, a ex-stewardess uh, who made that nice four-striped uh, face mask that he was wearing in the photo. So there you go. Her name is Yuki C, and uh, she puts an OXO on the end because she wants she loves to give hugs and kisses to everyone. So well, we love She's that very too. friendly. Yes, very yes. very friendly, which is nice. I like friendly people. So what did you call her, Yuki Coxo? Yes, I did. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember, but yeah, that sounds possible. I probably would have done the same thing because I. Mm, or yeah, Yuki in T-O-X-O. No, no, Liz, I can't play that sound clip. Sorry. <laughs> Steph, Steph wouldn't be very happy if I did. So mm. we shall move on. And we're awfully darn close to the time where we play a plain tale. Let me see if we have one here. Uh, looking down. Oh, yeah, we do. Uh, the uh, old pilot's plain tale this week is entitled Sherlock Holmes and the... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. No, just Holmes and the Battle of Britain. Take it away. 
the old pilot's plain tales, Holmes and the Battle of Britain. As September comes around, my mind often wanders not only to the number of birthdays that occur around this time, whatever were our parents up to at Christmas, but to the more important events that were occurring during these months in 1940. Mainland Europe had been entirely defeated by Nazi Germany's military and Britain faced total domination by the fascists and the horrors that they would bring. It would not be until the end of 1941, more than a year in the future, that the new world would come to the aid of the old, and in the meantime, Britain stood alone. On the 18th of June, Churchill stood in Parliament and gave a speech in which he stated that what General Wayland called the Battle of France was over, and that the Battle of Britain was about to begin. At the same time, Alfred Jodl, the Chief of Staff of the High Command of the Wehrmacht, issued a planning order stating that operations against England were to dislocate English imports, the armament industry and the transport of troops to France. The plan was to blockade Britain by air from the French coast and by sea using U-boats and force a negotiated peace. The first priority was to eliminate the Royal Air Force and gain complete air supremacy. Once the Luftwaffe had control of the air and the UK economy had been weakened, an invasion would be the final strike. On the same day, the Luftwaffe's commander-in-chief, Hermann Goering, issued his operational directive to destroy the RAF, thus protecting German industry. By mid-August, Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of Britain, was in preparation as an alternative to a negotiated surrender with Churchill, but Herr Hitler was keen to avoid a costly invasion. The answer to his question was given by Churchill in an epic speech containing the words, We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Parliament lauded his speech and sentiments and his secretary, Jock Coville, wrote in his diary, went down to the house to see the PM's statement on the evacuation of Dunkirk. It was a magnificent oration that obviously moved the house. MP Harold Nicholson wrote, This afternoon, Winston made the finest speech that I have ever heard. Another MP wrote that Churchill was eloquent and oratorical, and used magnificent English. The speech, with its later references to America joining the war, was obviously meant for consumption across the Atlantic, and the New York Times wrote, It took moral heroism to tell the story that Winston Churchill unfolded to the House of Commons yesterday. Its meaning will not be lost upon the British people or their enemies, 
or upon those in the new world who know that the Allies today are fighting their own battle against barbarism. There were many in the United States who didn't believe Britain had a chance, including the American ambassador in London, Joseph Kennedy. He favoured appeasement with the Nazis and argued against providing military and economic aid to the United Kingdom. In British government circles, Kennedy was widely disparaged as a defeatist. When the White House read his quotes, it became clear that Kennedy was completely out of step with Roosevelt's policies, and he was promptly recalled. But Kennedy wasn't the only one who thought that Britain had little chance. The Luftwaffe had advised Hitler that gaining air superiority over England would only take 14 to 28 days. Thus, the scene was set for the world's first major military campaign to be fought solely in the air. Officially, it started on the 10th of July 1940 and concluded at the end of October, but this overlaps the Blitz terror bombing attacks on London and other major cities. German historians see the campaign running from July for more than a year, which only goes to illustrate what an effect this conflict must have had on the men and women of the Royal Air Force and Fleet Air Arm. In the main, the battle faced the Luftwaffe's Messerschmitt Bf109e and Bf110c against the RAF's poster child, the Spitfire Mark I and the Hurricane Mark I, which were twice as numerous as the Spitfire. The 109 could climb better and was 40 miles an hour faster in level flight than the Hurricane, although by mid-1940 all RAF fighter squadrons had converted to 100-octane fuel, which, at lower levels, gave them a 30-mile-an-hour increase when using emergency boost override. But the 109 always had an advantage. The RAF's aircraft were also armed with eight 303 Browning machine guns against the 20mm cannons of the 109s. The difference in hitting power was demonstrated by the Luftwaffe bombers who made it home with multiple bullet holes, in some cases more than 200. The disadvantage of the Messerschmitt was its manoeuvrability, and although its fuel-injected engine could better handle negative G than the Merlin, it had a larger turning radius. In general, though, as the renowned aviation author Alfred Price mentions... The differences between the Spitfire and the ME-109 in performance and handling were only marginal, and in a combat they were almost always surmounted by tactical considerations of which side had seen the other first, which had the advantage of sun, altitude, numbers, pilot ability, tactical situation, tactical coordination, amount of fuel remaining, etc., Fighter command was never short of pilots per se, but by mid-August 1940, the problem of finding sufficient numbers of fully trained fighter pilots became acute. Aircraft production was running at 300 planes each week, but only 200 pilots could be trained in the same period. 
The RAF had lost 435 pilots during the Battle of France, with many more wounded, and others were lost in Norway. Drawing from every source, on July 1, 1940, the British could only muster some 1,103 fighter pilots, and the new pilots, who often had little flight training and no gunnery training, suffered high casualty rates, exacerbating the problem. In comparison, the Luftwaffe were able to draw on 1,450 experienced fighter pilots, many of whom had combat experience from the Civil War in Spain. To bolster their numbers, about 20% of the RAF's pilots came from other countries, and they fought with great distinction, as I have mentioned in previous tales. The scene was set for a battle never before experienced by any Air Force, but despite their problems, the RAF had some distinct advantages. The Luftwaffe didn't appreciate the importance of the chain home radar system that gave the RAF advanced warning of attacks and allowed squadrons to get airborne with height and speed advantage to meet oncoming raids. Despite a few attacks, which on occasions put sections out of action, the Germans decided that the open steel towers were too hard to knock down and generally left them alone. In addition, the German fighters were close to the limit of their range and had little time to spend in the combat area before red low fuel lights forced them to disengage and head for home. In the middle of this remarkable conflict was one Raymond Towers Holmes. Artie, as he was known, a nickname made from his initials, R and T, was a pretty typical Battle of Britain pilot. He'd grown up in Cheshire, gone to an unremarkable grammar school, and then worked as a crime journalist with the Birkenhead Advertiser. Unlike the members of the Royal Auxiliary Air Force, who were considered an elite corps of civilians who served their country in their spare time and often came from the wealthiest classes, Artie joined the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve. Indeed, he was only the 55th man to do so. He trained to fly at Breswick in Scotland, and then, when war broke out, he ended up with number 5 Flying Training School at Sealand, where in December 1939 he was court-martialed and severely reprimanded for low flying. His reprimand didn't dampen his flying spirit, though, and when his squadron, number 504, was moved from Wick to Hendon in London, an airfield which is now home to the RAF Museum, he found himself in the middle of the Battle of Britain. A couple of months later, on the 15th of September, he scrambled his hurricane, Tango Mike Bravo, on yet another operational sortie to tackle more incoming raids of German bombers escorted by fighters. The day is now known as Battle of Britain Day and it was an all-out attack on London that forced the RAF to launch every fighter they could to defend the country. They had nothing left in reserve. To German intelligence, it seemed as if the RAF might be on the verge of collapse, 
but the response the Luftwaffe received that day demonstrated the reverse. Within a few days, the invasion of England had been delayed, and the tactic of destroying the RAF on the ground changed to the blitz bombing of cities instead. Artie was airborne and in the thick of the fighting when he saw a formation of three Dornier DO-17s heading for central London. In his own words, Artie tells the story. I made my attack on this bomber and he spurted out a lot of oil, just a great stream over my aeroplane, blotting out my windscreen. I couldn't see a damn thing. Then, as the windscreen cleared, I suddenly found myself going straight into his tail, so I stuck my stick forward and went under him, practically grazing my head on his belly. Sergeant Holmes had fallen foul of a German secret weapon, which had only just been fitted to a few aircraft as a trial, a rearward-facing flamethrower. As early as the end of 1939, Lieutenant Stahl, a technical officer at KG-51, made the proposal to repel attacking fighters with flamethrowers built into the rear of the bombers and long-range reconnaissance aircraft. The attacking hunter was supposed to push into the ejected soot and oil cloud so that his cabin windows suddenly became blind. Artie continues. I got to the stern of the aeroplane and was shooting at him, when suddenly something white came out of the aircraft. I thought that a part of his wing had come away, but in actual fact it turned out to be a man with a parachute coming out. I was travelling at 250 miles an hour. It all happened so quickly, but before I knew what had happened, this bloody parachute was draped over my starboard wing. There was this poor devil on his parachute hanging straight out behind me and my aeroplane was being dragged. All I could do was swing the aeroplane left and right to try and get rid of this man. Fortunately, his parachute slid off my wing and down he went and I thought, thank heavens for that. It was then that Ray Holmes saw the third bomber heading directly for Buckingham Palace. He positioned himself for a head-on attack, but then, to his horror, he found that he was out of ammunition. As I fired, he said, my ammunition gave out. I thought, hell, he's got away now. And there he was, coming straight along, and his tail looked very fragile and very inviting. So I thought, I'd just take the tip off his tail. So I went straight at it, along him and hit his port fin with my port wing. I thought, that will just take his fin off and he'll never get home without the tail fin. I didn't allow for the fact that the tail fin was actually part of the main fuselage. Although I didn't know it at the time, I found out later that I'd knocked off the whole back end of his aircraft, including the twin tails. Jimmy Early was playing football at the corner of Ebury Bridge Road near Victoria Station. Suddenly they heard gunfire, early recall. We ran up to Ebury Bridge, and I can remember the hurricane seemed to go underneath the Dornier, which split, and all of a sudden, wallop, it came down in no time. Obviously the hurricane pilot had no care for his own safety. He couldn't have done. He just hit it, and the back of it came off. 
Holmes' own plane began to dive to the left and was no longer responding to the controls. As the hurricane went into a vertical dive, Holmes bailed out. When he climbed out, the airstream caught him and smacked him down onto the roof of the hurricane. Then, as he was thrown backwards, his shoulder hit his own tail fin, and when he finally managed to pull his ripcord, the jolt shook off his flying boots. I was right over the railway lines, running into Victoria Station. I thought, hell, I'm going to get electrocuted now after all this. Then I was swinging towards a row of houses. I hit the roof of one and couldn't get any grip on the slates in my stocking feet. I slithered down the roof until I got to the gutter and thought, now I'm going to break my back and kill myself, falling off a three-storey house. But as I fell, there was a sudden jerk and I stopped with just my toes on the ground. My canopy had snagged over an uppipe running past the gutter, and that had stopped me. But both my feet were inside a dustbin. The lid was on the ground. The bin had obviously just been emptied. My two toes touched the bottom of the bin, but my heels were still off the ground. Holmes was fated by the press as a war hero for the saving of Buckingham Palace although it's not now believed to have been a specific target. As the RAF did not practice ramming as an air combat tactic, this was considered an act of selfless courage. This event became one of the defining moments of the Battle of Britain and elicited a congratulatory note to the RAF from Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands who had witnessed the event. Artie recovered and survived the war despite fighting on the northern front with the Russians near Murmansk and then flying photo reconnaissance in PR Spitfires. After the war, he was made a king's messenger, personally delivering correspondence to the Prime Minister Winston Churchill before returning to a career in journalism. Sixty-five years later, his aircraft was discovered and excavated from the streets of London. National Geographic made a documentary about it, The Search for the Lost Fighter Plane. Ray Holmes passed away in 2005 at the age of 90. Wow. Another amazing story. I especially love him just hanging or on his toes in the in the garbage bin after <laughs> hitting an airplane and taking it out. Wow. What a guy. I know. I know. It, uh, every time I discover one of these stories, it makes me, you know, uh, just amazed. And I love finding out about them and uh, even more i love telling them but uh yeah you know once a year battle of britain is a perfect time to remind ourselves of just how mm. damn brave those young men were yeah and quite a feat to live to uh the ripe absolutely. old age of 90 you know after all that oh uh, absolutely yes i know he uh he, <laughs> yeah and uh, he was just you know, Certainly, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, right? <laughs> yeah, apparently, he's a good yeah. example of that. And yeah. flamethrowers? Yeah. I didn't, I, I never heard of this. I didn't know. No, that was, a, <laughs> that was a new one on me as well. I uh, I went, 
what? Surely it was just oil from an engine. But no, it turns out that they had attached these pipes on the back that were flamethrowers. They were sort of flamethrowers designed for tanks and troops and things. Uh, quite big bits of kit, and uh, but, but they didn't work. They didn't ignite very well at altitude, so uh, they just chucked out oil and stuff, and then they went, "Well, I, that'll work." <laughs> <laughs> so, could you say that Artie is a sling pilot because uh, he had the uh, the parachuted uh, pilot from the uh, ah yes on ha- hanging on his Slung wing, him. wasn't it Artie? That yeah, whoever that mm-hmm. chucked him out didn't do a very good job because he bashed off in the, in the fin well, on Artie, his way out. The Artie poor swung chap. him out uh, off his yeah. wing anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what a great story, though. I mean, there yeah. are so many like that. I, I just, Fantastic. I just love it. Yeah. That is awesome. Forty minutes left. All right. Well, we need to move on. We have about forty minutes remaining in our episode, and Ooh, should uh, we better crack some on then. Yeah. Uh, but again, great, great uh, plain tale, sir. Thank you. Uh, let's see. Let's do uh, eight. John, J-O-N, he loves the show. And he said he saw this and thought it was applicable. Now, I think we've, uh, early on on the uh, APG, I think we may have read this uh, before, but it's worth repeating because it's very funny. Mm-hmm. It's in a newspaper article, um, and this says, the uh, it's one boy's opinion of pilots. The following was written by Tommy Tyler, fifth grade, Jefferson Grade School, Beaufort or Beaufort? Beaufort. Yeah, Beaufort, South Carolina. It's Beaufort, South Carolina, Beaufort, North Carolina, same Ah, spelling. I was wondering because I'm thinking, I know that I've heard it pronounced Beaufort. So if you're flying a Beaufort and you fly from South Carolina to North Carolina, or one of those. (laughs) Carolina, yes. You have to call it yourself a Beaufort then? It goes, if you're in North Carolina, it's Beaufort. In South Carolina, it's Beaufort. I don't make the rules of pronunciation here. It's just oh, how it is. I feel very sorry for those Beaufort pilots. What I do uh, <laughs> love is um, the Brunswick stew from Brunswick, South mm. Carolina. Georgia. South Carolina. Or Georgia, I mean. <laughs> Darn it. Hey, that's the joke. I'm up. supposed there's, to make a where there's wow. a Brunswick. You is come it, from the country. No, is it North Carolina that has a Brunswick also? Aren't they, yes, they have Brunswick stew, Brunswick stew is a thing they, in North they, Carolina like, also. They're fighting but, all the time, saying, no, it's yeah. our stew, not your stew. Anyway, I'm so they get into a stew it. about it, do they? They do. They get all uh-huh. in a stew about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's go back to Tommy Tyler, the fifth grader at Jefferson Grade School in Beaufort, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. I said, why I want to be a pilot. When I grow up, I want to be a pilot because it's a fun job and easy to do. That's Yay! why there are so many pilots <laughs> flying around these days. <laughs> pilots don't need much school no (laughs) that's true actually they just have to learn to read numbers so they can read instruments i guess they should be able to read roadmaps too so they can find their way if they get lost pilots should be brave so they won't get scared if it's foggy and they can't see or if a wing or a motor falls off (laughs) they should just stay calm so they'll know what to do pilots have to have good eyes to see through the clouds and they can't be afraid of lightning or thunder because they are much closer to them than we are very true that is very true a lot of this is true actually uh the salary pilots make is another thing i like they make more money than they know what to do with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my wife knows what to do with it no problem this is because most people think that flying plane flying is dangerous except pilots don't because they know how easy it is. <laughs> I hope I don't get airsick because 
I get car sick. And if I get air sick, I couldn't be a pilot. And then I would have to go to work. <laughs> this was very logical and thought out. I like it. The guy is, love it. be a perfect pilot, actually. Anyway. He's prob- he probably is one now. I've no he doubt. probably is because it's been around for, for a <laughs> little while. It's been around but. for a while. Oh, that's so cool. Thank you, John. Appreciate that. Um, and uh, moving on to our good friend, Ray. Uh, he's just a neighbor of mine up, uh, up the road in Alpharetta, Georgia. He says, um, our number one daughter-in-law, full disclosure, we only have one daughter-in-law, came across the, so I guess she's the the worst one as well. Yeah. Uh, Came across this video last week and sent it on to me. I thought it was pretty interesting. I learned quite a bit about airplane manufacturing. Making templates seemed very cool. Going to work all dressed up with a tie, etc. Wouldn't have appealed to me, though. Actually, it was a tad surprising from the time I was in university through my first job. Ties were strong verboten or streng verboten. Never seen S-T-R-E-N-G, but I guess that means very verboten or forbidden when we were anywhere where there were operating machines. Yeah, that's a good, probably a very good. Strictly forbidden? Strictly, maybe? Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I'm it's just it's German, guess. apparently, right? Or mm. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe. South Africa. I, so. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I, I suspect that some APGers might. Yes, find you're right, Steph. Strictly forbidden. Strictly Woo-hoo. forbidden. Thank you. Anyway, I suspect that some APGers might find the video a fun way to pass some time. What a novel and revolutionary way to design an aircraft. Ask the pilots what they want. And uh, No, I actually don't do that. Don't do that. For <laughs> heaven's sake. Uh, yeah, you you'll know, end up with the same airplane built all over again. That is true. That is true. So we have a. Li- I'm not going to play the whole thing, obviously, uh, but we're going to play just a little clip of this um, movie, this video that uh, Ray gave us a link to. Grumman at war. It all began a while ago. On an envelope, Roy Grumman, the boss himself, was at the controls. Back in the summer of 41, he and Jake Swerbel were putting their heads together. Jake had just returned from the Pacific, where he talked with pilots who were already in Grumman Wildcats. So right from the beginning, the engineers began to design a pilot ship, and Jake got the plant managers together. They came from plants two, three, Four, he got them together to tell them about the new ship. A fast start was necessary. They didn't have a number five? (laughs) Apparently not. It sounded to me like he was about to say number five, and then probably somebody kind of gave him the signal like, no, no, don't mention that one. (laughs) What about number one? Yeah, we've had enough now. (laughs) Or number one. Liz makes a good point. What about shop number one? Only two, three, and four. Yeah. Anyway, um, sorry about that. The uh, audio on that was only in the right channel, and so that was kind of weak sounding. But uh, we have a link here, so you can watch the video yourself at home. Make sure you cook up some popcorn and have a nice Coca-Cola or something to go with it. Anyway, yep. it's very uh, fun to watch the uh, the old-fashioned fashions and all that kind of stuff. Right. The old-timey stuff. The old-timey stuff. Even before... I- I was around and Nick was around, which was a long time ago. Oh, yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Ray. Um, definitely a fun video to watch to pass some time. 
Thomas sends us Thomas Salme. Um, hi, Jeff. The other day I listened to live ATC and noticed that still today, the only airline in the world that is using non-standard radio communication is Lufthansa. They always answer on a clearance, etc., with their call sign first, not after the message from ATC. For example, air traffic control, Lufthansa 402, you are clear for takeoff. Lufthansa says, Lufthansa 402, clear for takeoff. Correct, according to Thomas, correct should be Lufthansa, clear for, I mean, <laughs> clear for, I'm sorry, I'm getting confused. Lufthansa 402, clear for takeoff. Lufthansa 402. In other words, the order in which you read back, um, Thomas thinks that they're doing it all wrong. They're the only ones that do it. Now, I have to say. Remind me not to take a takeoff clearance from you. Yes. I have to say, <laughs> and, I, and I wrote back to Thomas, and we had a little dis- back and forth about, about this. Go ahead, Steph. I was going to say, I'm lucky if I get all the relevant bits into one <laughs> transmission. So, you know. I, no, I don't know why. I don't know if it's, it used to be written in the what used to be called the Airman's Information Manual, now the Aeronautical Information Manual. And I went to it and I thought, well, I know for sure it's in here and it's not. So either it was in there and they took it out or because nobody was doing it the way that it said to do, or maybe it never was in, maybe it was a company memo that, but I know I read it somewhere that we, at least maybe a couple of decades ago. Yeah. I've been around for quite some time, been flying for, you know, 40 years or whatever total. Um, It, it said that the proper order of things is the way Lufthansa is doing it. Lufthansa, if somebody says Lufthansa 402, you clear for takeoff, then the the appropriate response would be Lufthansa 402, clear for takeoff. However, I looked everywhere, and maybe you out there listening to the show can send us some feedback and tell me exactly where it specifies whether you say your call sign at the beginning of the readback or the end of the readback. Um, and, you know, if it really matters, I don't know, but I can tell you what, that it is very difficult for, I really try hard to do it the way Lufthansa does it all the time. But you know what? Sometimes I think it's just easier for human nature when air, especially if air traffic control gives you a long set of instructions and they're not supposed to give you more than a, a few things like, you know, heading altitude, airspeed, you're not supposed to do like more than two or three at a time, whatever. Uh, but sometimes they break that rule. So they give you all these instructions and then you have to read it back and it's easier to read back exactly what they just told you immediately because while it's still in your very, very short term memory than to say your call sign first and then read it all back because that little bit of time, at least for my brain, it's all gone. Or at least it seems like for most pilots, it's all gone. So people usually read back the instruction immediately. And then at the very end of it, they'll add their call sign so that air traffic control knows that that transmission was from the person they wanted it to be from, you know, to, to get the the um, instruction. Does that make sense? Am mm-hmm. I making this too complicated? Yeah, that, no, that it, makes perfect it, it sense. Kind of does. Yeah. I think that's how most people would do it because all they're going to do is repeat back exactly what they heard. And then at the very end, it, hopefully you know what your call sign is or it's written down somewhere. So you don't have to retain that in that's your true. memory the way that but you, you have do to remember to whatever the, the instructions right are. <laughs> you have to go, oh, yeah. I, where did I put that? There's a good reason for doing it the way it should be done, which is when you're replying, you put your call sign last. Uh, in, and that's to separate it from the language that an air trafficker uses to the language mm-hmm. that a pilot uses. Mm-hmm. In other words, um, 
edge traffic always use your call sign first because that's who they're addressing. Mm -hmm. You come back with the clearance and then reply with your call sign so they know it's you who's giving the reply. And the reason for that in my mind and the reason that I've always, in my 45 years, always done it that way is that if you repeat it exactly as air traffic uh, has said it, someone else might hear it and think, oh, that was my call sign. Because mm -hmm. you're effectively giving a clearance when you repeat it back exactly as air traffic have done. That is true. You've just transmitted that clearance. And someone else might go, oh, that, perhaps that was my call sign. I'll, I'll do that. Uh, whereas if you do it the correct way, then you know you're just replying to a clearance. I was just trying to do it the way that I read it was supposed to be done. And Colin um, Goon in the chat room, the uh, live um, audience, says the phraseology changed about five years ago. So at least here in the U.S. Now, we're not talking about worldwide ICAO standards, but I, I just know that I read that you were supposed to do it that way. And it was very difficult to do because it's so much easier to do what you're talking about, Nick, and what you've al always done, mm -hmm. which is immediately read it back. And you know what? Honestly, about at least 50% of the time or more, that's the way I do it too, because it's just easier and it, it really does kind of make sense to do it that way. But I always thought, well, I mean, if you think about it too, you know, if you're, so if you're calling up ATC with a request or something, you're not going to, <laughs> you're going to, you're going to say them first and then end with who you are, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, for the I same, can for all the same reasons that, yeah, mm -hmm. I, I mean, Again, I, I wasn't doing it because I th thought that that was the better way to do it. I thought I was doing it because I thought that was the proper way to do it, that the way that they said you you are supposed to do it. And I always try to do, I try to be like by the book, try to do it the way people want me to do it, unless it's just ridiculously wrong. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, so um, many people have said, you know, uh, it, it's okay either way. You can do it either way and there i guess you can make an argument for for both ways to do it but uh lane makes a good point call sign at the end signals the end of the transmission and that's true so i mean if i were to argue this on you know what really makes more sense logically i would have to side with the people that are saying a call sign at the end although i'm gonna have to say that maybe the lutons of people was, were reading the same thing i read <laughs> that said you were supposed to do it this way and maybe they didn't get the memo that things have changed now and you can do it any way you want i don't know well, Lufthansa are pretty good at sticking to the rules. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Another good point. They're Germans, right? Or not all of them are Germans, but I would imagine the um, the majority of Lufthansa pilots. <laughs> we should get something from Stefan uh, on there's this. There's no doubt about it that RT, RT discipline and getting things the right way around can make life an awful lot simpler. Yeah. Uh, you don't want to be like the Australians where <laughs> they're like anal about it, but. Um, <laughs> Oh, I think you'd need to be you know, sure that you're being unambiguous. That's right. I'm offended <laughs> also. Yeah. Australian. A is for Australian. A is for okay. anal. That's what uh, Nick said. Oh boy. I didn't say it. I don't forget I'm half Australian, so just be careful. Oh, man. that's right. He can say that. Yeah, can. I can't. I don't have any grounds to say it. Uh, I did nope. look up, by the way, I was, I was listening to the plain tale and I'd listened to it actually before I played it on today's show. So that makes a change. Uh, but it, while it was playing in the background again, um, you don't believe me? Is that what you said? Well, I said it makes change. It makes a it change. Just makes, yeah. It's different. Okay. It's, well, that's true. it's better. Do different. <laughs> um, I looked up some stats and um, I'm not going to give you actual numbers, but I'll give you some percentages. How about um, 
fifth of, of uh, audience and a representative. I chose um, a uh, one of our shows from about a month or two ago, and about fifty six percent of the downloads were from the United States. Uh, coming in second place would be the UK at ten percent. Um, let's see. Then would be Canada with about 5%, Australia about 5%, New Zealand 1%, um, Brazil 3%, uh, Sweden 1.3%. Um, in Africa, I can't even give percentages. I mean, most of the countries that I moved the, the mouse cursor over, there was like one download from each of the countries, just one. So Nigeria, there was one download. That's Ahmad. I know who that was. Um, And, um, and then, uh, let's see. Oh, Argentina, Gus, I have some bad news for you. Argentina, from what I could calculate was about one tenth of 1%. (laughs) Not a a lot of people. Thank you, Gus. Huh? Thank you to Gus. though. Yeah. Thank you, Gus, for being one of the one tenth of 1% though. (laughs) Uh, How many is that? We need to know. Yeah, I, I can't say because then everybody could extrapolate our numbers, right. and I don't care about numbers. So, anyway. No. Anyway, get st- us, there Stefan, to send in some Stefan, yes. Uh, Liz is saying Liz, Stefan How should. many is that? Liz doesn't know either. <laughs> nah. Um, I'm not good at math. Stefan, uh, if you're listening, which I believe you, you are, um, regarding the whole call sign thing um, and radio transmissions, uh, how about uh, giving us some some feedback regarding that um you know just to kind of get some different ideas okay uh continuing on anthony oh i don't know if you guys saw this uh this is i uh, saw this david blaine's stunt and honestly i didn't know who the heck david blaine is i guess he's a a magician or something he's a magician slash illusionist Illusionist. wacky stunts okay so apparently they did some kind of a YouTube special presentation of this stunt and it, it had to do with, um, it, it reminded me of the movie, uh, what was it called up up yeah. very much yeah. <laughs> where of course he had balloons tied to his house. Well, David Blaine had balloons, his arm tied to all these balloons <laughs> and he, um, kind of went aloft in, um, what was it? New Mexico or Arizona or somewhere? I think it was Arizona. Arizona. Near, I um, exactly. I, 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 I just watched it this morning. I can't remember somewhere out in the desert Southwest. And, um, it was, uh, a very long drawn out show, a lot to do with like the first two thirds of it were all the preparation and science behind everything. And, uh, Did the last the thing, pardon me. You watched the whole thing? No, I, I kind of skipped oh, ahead okay. quite a bit because gotcha. um, I didn't have two hours and 58 minutes and some odd seconds to watch the entire thing. Uh, but, you know, honestly, I, I, I looked at it and I'm thinking, it was not that really, really exciting to me or I, I don't know what the big deal was. He went up to about 20 something thousand feet. And then at some point in the in the ascent with these um, page, Arizona. Thank you. Um, you and uh, somewhere in the ascent, he uh, grabbed this rope and, and pulled down his parachute, put the parachute on, and then, um, you know, tried to make it very dramatic about how difficult it was to put the parachute on. I don't know. It didn't look like, like it was that difficult to 
put the leg straps on and everything else, but he was making a lot of noises about it. Um, and, uh, and then he got to a point where he hit a thing and, and then fell from this big bunch of helium balloons and, and then, uh, at some point pulled the rip cord and then parachuted down and then landed. It was like, I don't know. Did you, um, you know like what my, my response, close. someone asked me about it. Mm, meh. Yeah. What do you, what'd <laughs> you say, Nick? Uh, it's not like he was the first, because of course Lawn Chair Larry was right. The first. But did Lawn Chair Larry have a parachute and parachute? No, he did not. He, oh, that's even he made more a forty-five-minute <laughs> flight, uh, and he reached an altitude of fifteen thousand feet, and uh, right through Los Angeles Airport's controlled airspace. Um, and, and during the landing, he became entangled in power lines. So. <laughs> You know, and he just about drama. <laughs> yeah, exactly I'd watch right. that. So, I mean, in comparison, I would rather watch Lunge Larry do his thing. Thank you very oh, much. Yeah, I thought the uh, the Red Bull thing with Felix Baumgartner jumping from like the edge of space was. Oh, that's, that was pretty cool. Yeah, that yeah. that was. Was that the one? The guy without the parachute? No, no he, he had a parachute. There. That was a different guy who. But he was so, way way up there. So the one of the guys, the the guy that jumped out without a parachute and and landed into a net, which I thought was pretty pretty interesting and exciting well, um, crazy. and crazy but he was like the chief um i don't know one of the guys in charge of this whole david blaine thing and i think i'd rather see this guy jump out again without a parachute <laughs> into a net i hope he doesn't do it my heart was in my mouth the first time yeah i, I could have yeah. withstood another one right i don't know well, anyway, if you're interested, oh, be, I should probably be about it. I should probably read what Anthony said. Okay. Um, <laughs> since he did go go to the trouble of sending in this feedback, did I read this? No, I don't think I did. No, and he actually did find it very interesting. Okay. So we're, oh, I'm sorry, we're the minority Anthony. here. Probably. <laughs> I hope I didn't hurt your feelings about this. I came across this ac by accident and found it to be a really interesting video featuring David Blaine doing another one of his wacky stunts. Fortunately for us aviation enthusiasts, this one features a fair amount of aviation content, especially lighter than air flying as well as skydiving i strongly suggest if you have time to watch the entire video from the setup of the experimental aircraft they have to create to rig all the balloons together to i mean i must have missed that part um to david himself learning how to fly hot air balloons it was all really interesting and fun to watch i hope you are all doing well uh, at unfortunate times like now keep the blue side up and again that's anthony anthony tamborini and uh, we'll have the link to that david blaine thing uh youtube special yeah, in the make times. up your own mind yeah mm -hmm. i just thought eh, like, I, I had the same reaction that stuff eh, well okay i mean very well done very very well produced oh yeah definitely lots of money you could tell they spent on this lots of money so sponsors you know, yeah a lot of sponsors and you know youtube i'm sure paid a lot of money for it <sighs> anyway so all right uh, all right okay okay i'll keep going uh Captain Peter says, mock no more. Oh, okay. What's this about? A point of order. Point of order! Regarding episode 438, a poor, wrongly maligned listener was confused when entering the cockpit, could not find the horn. Much amusement ensued. This listener was just on the wrong airplane. On the 747-8F, it has three now, yes, I admit two are beyond my control unless I throw another shrimp on the bobby under the APU, which will set off one of the horns in the right main gear well. 
However, I do have one directly under my control on the aft aisle stand. A switch, when pressed, sounds a loud horn at the nose gear to alert the ground crew. Unfortunately, this only is applicable on the ground. However, I do have a suggestion for Boeing. This horn, upgraded of course, should be linked to the TCAS system once airborne. A short Italianesque tootle for a TA, the full foghorn effect for an RA. I feel that I've missed my calling as an avionics engineer. <laughs> yes, I think you have, Captain Peter. <laughs> he said onwards and upwards. You know what we do? Um, also have a mechanic call. I think is what it's called. A mechanic. Uh, it's like a, a horn in the wheel well that makes an obnoxious sounding noise horn that you press. And on the on the Mad Dog was in the upper um, instrument panel, and you press the thing. And it goes. I don't. I can't even. You're, I try well, to find it. Was it was for the obnoxious mechanic. Of course. Yes, of the <laughs> exactly. Um, and it it works on the in the air too. You can you can hit it, you know hit it and you can actually hear it. You know it doesn't cut off uh, just because you're airborne. Although nobody's going to hear it. I want one that plays <laughs> Dixie. <laughs> now that would be the way to go, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, it would. Yeah, Dukes of Hazard. Dukes of Hazard. <laughs> Oh, man. Um, so let's see. Uh, he continues regarding episode 441. Oh, Captain Nick, where is Miami Rick when you need him? He's um, never here, mate. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. He's somewhere <laughs> long, uh, way, way far away. Halfway around the world. Yeah, right halfway now. around That's the world, literally. Yeah. Uh, the A340-300 has a better power to weight ratio than the B747-300? Well, Yes. So did the Russian Lada. <laughs> okay, uh, isn't that a car? What do you uh, what do you call a what do you <laughs> call a Skoda full of vegetables? Uh, I don't know. A Lada. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh, I get it. Lar larder. A Lada. Yes, uh, that's where you put okay. your food. Larder. Um, yeah, yeah, you know, that's the Russian. Car, the people in the United States are going to go. We don't use that what? term. We don't even use that term, so they're going. I have no yeah, idea what you're talking. About. Half of pantry. our audience is what? a pantry. Huh? A pantry, yeah. yeah. Okay, um, I guess that's where they used to sto store lard, right? Mm -hmm. uh, well, it could be. I don't know. Yeah, I doubt that's probably yeah, where he got so. his name. No, don't could doubt be. me. Don't doubt <laughs> me. Look it up. <laughs> Ask Liz. I'm going to look it up right now. Liz. I think look it up. I'm looking it up. Okay, there. Everybody's looking it up. Liz is looking it up. Steph is looking it up. But and is I'm you really suggesting that the uh, a 747 has got low power to weight ratio? Well, hang on yeah. a second. Let me uh, let me continue. I He's just not think finished it's yet. Great news. I love Peter this sent in. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. And he is he wants to get his money's worth here. But I guess Liz wants me to stop. It's yes. From the Middle English. From the Middle English. Denoting a store of meat. Denoting a store of meat. And also from Latin, lardium or lardarium. Oh, wait, hang on. And also in Latin, lardium. What? And lardarium. Lardarium. Sea lard. Sea lard. Yes. So it lard Aha. is, yes, it is common. That's where we get the name. Common origin. Okay. So lard's named from a lardarium. Or something like that. Not the other way around. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> A lard is named for lard. There we go. Oh, well done, Liz. She reckons we back up 50%. 50%. All right. Maybe we should just quit right now. Yes. While we're no, I like this story. Carry on. Tell, tell me more about these okay. bad, poor, All right, here we dreadful go. 747. However, may I suggest Nick shut up? No, he didn't say that. Uh, however, may I suggest that there is something much closer for 
competition for the A340-300, the Boeing 777-300 with its Rolls-Royce Trent engines. Hmm. Acme East has simulators for both the 777-300ER and the Vanilla-300. And when simulator check time came around, one dreaded to carry out engine failures in the Dash 300. The excess thrust couldn't pull the skin of boiled milk. That's oh, he's, he's maligned both 747s and, and 777s, 777s all in one feedback. Oh, this is fantastic. You have to, you'll have to exit yes. this part here and send it directly to Miami Rick so that he's yep. sure to listen to it because <laughs> I suspect he might have something to say. Why? No, he would not. Oh. Have anything to What's say she saying? Uh, the Dash 300 Boeing spoken only about in, in whispers. whispers. The, black the black sheep of the family. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Forever you're my uh, Captain Peter, you're now my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he likes you, Peter. Okay. Are you going to skip to 16 and 17? Maybe? I think I am because you're probably okay. suggesting that I should. Let's go to 16. Uh, Dave sent some feedback about ground effect. And he says, thanks all again for the continued quality entertainment. <laughs> again, I think he's listening to the wrong show or sending it back in quotations <laughs> or maybe yeah, yeah, address wrong quality ah. entertainment interesting inf- information and what appears to be an above 50 percent average accuracy score okay we got to play the bell over the last few episodes oops didn't mean to have that one so loud uh congratulations uh the airline pilot guy show seems to be the place to go for answers to all the really important questions in aviation such as airbus or boeing what's your favorite airplane what is happening with the 737 Max? Why is the Tornado better than the F-18? Sorry, Captain Nick. What does Miami Rick use a yellow post-it note for, and what is it written on? Et cetera. Et cetera. Wouldn't it be a post-it note? What, uh, is, written what is written on it? Oh, what's written on it? Oh, no wonder. That makes more sense. I have another beer, Jeff. <laughs> I haven't even had one yet. Oh, well, that's, that's the, the problem. Yeah, that is yeah. the problem. Uh, so in the uh, that vein of possibly asking a repeat question, forgive me, I'm fairly new. I was wondering if you could help me by explaining ground effect. I've heard about it before, but my interest was reignited when you were recently discussing the remarkable Russian Caspian Sea Monster Ekranoplan. How does this thing fly? Is it a viable technology? The fact that many others have tried it possibly says something. No, the fact not many others have tried it possibly says something. Is ground effect different on water than land? What are the dangers of ground effect, or can it be helpful in certain situations? Kind regards, Dave Lakeland. And I'm going to let Nick answer it. Yeah, okay. Uh, I pointed, Dave, at uh, the... Uh, plain tale I did exactly about this subject uh, called the BC Monsters. Uh, so you can find that on our website uh, or any good uh, podcast thing, me jig. Um, so in just a quickie on each of your questions, how does it fly? Well, it flies like an airplane uh, because it has wings and jet engines and stuff, uh, but it doesn't necessarily climb very high. Uh, it just sits there in ground effect, but it is in the air. Uh, does ground effect differ uh, on the water and land? No, it doesn't, because it just needs a solid surface uh, to be underneath the aircraft. So it doesn't. But it's mainly done over water because you don't fly very high, and there are, you know, a big pine tree would take your wing off if you tried it too much over land. So unless you're flying over the Bonneville salt flats, 
I wouldn't recommend doing it over land. Um, what are the dangers of ground effect, uh, and can it be helpful? Yes, uh, it can, which is why the Russians in particular spent so much money uh, building these ground effect aircraft um, because uh, military use, it's got a lot of advantages. Um, the aircraft comes in very low. As you can see from that picture we've got right now, it's, it's about 15, 20 feet above the surface of the water, um, which means that it sits below the radar. You'll get very late notice of a ground effect aircraft coming towards you. Uh, certainly in the period we're talking uh, when these aircraft were in the middle of the Cold War, the early part of the Cold War. Nowadays, your radar is much more efficient. You spot them coming from years ago. Um, and the other advantage is the, uh, the range these aircraft have. For the same fuel, you can go a much bigger distance. Uh, now, that's because of the reduction in drag you get when you fly an aircraft uh, this close to the ground or the water. So it's, you end up with enormous reduction in aerodynamic drag. One of the biggest um, reasons we get drag on an aircraft is uh, from spillover through from the wingtips. And uh, that's just why we get uh, a lot of winglets, um, you know, flat plates, wing fences, all this stuff to stop spanwise flow. Without going into a whole explanation of what spanwise flow is, it's the direction of flow across the wing that generates the big vortices that uh, attach to our wing tips. And when you're very close to the ground, the ground acts like a winglet or a fence or a something that stops this spanwise flow and cuts off a lot of the drag that you get from generating lift on your wing. So uh, that is effectively what ground effect is. It's the reduction in uh, drag on the wings. Um, now, in big aircraft, normal aircraft, uh, you feel this when you're coming into land. Um, and you, as you approach the ground, usually within a, about half your wingspan. So I flew the A340, had about a 200-foot wingspan. So within about 100 feet of the ground, you start to feel ground effect. Uh, and um, it um, allows the airplane to fly uh, with less drag, which means it's harder to slow down and uh, reduces the angle of attack a little uh, because of uh, the reduction in the deflection of the air of the wing. Um, and um, it also provides a sort of cushioning effect because uh, the pressure uh, underneath the wing, the slightly higher pressure that sits there, is now forced between the aircraft wing and the ground and if you can imagine a bit like a hovercraft, it, it provides this cushioning effect, which makes the aircraft um, <laughs> float. <laughs> just float along the ground. You've got frogs for me, you fool. Oh, that's <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry. It's been a long time yeah, since we no. played the frogs. Oh, Where, uh, so ground yeah. effect does work. It reduces drag. It allows an aircraft <laughs> to go further. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a very efficient way of flying. Uh, why didn't it develop? Well, it didn't develop because uh, you're very close to the ground and banking and turning the airplane <laughs> is really hard because you only need to put a little bit of angular bank on. You dip the wingtip in the ground and you can't wheel the airplane, uh, which is a bit of a nightmare. Uh, so it's not terribly practical. You can only do, really do it over water. However, there are some modern 
variants. Uh, there only two years ago, um, Fish Eight was um, uh, there. Uh, Singapore built in Singapore, a company called Widget Works, and they produce sort of six or eight seater. Uh, triangular aircraft with down-shaped wings, uh, floats on the wingtips, uh, very clever-looking airplane. So people are still producing these in the light mm. sport and uh, light aircraft and small. Uh, everyone thinks it's a great idea until you realize that hey, it might not be as practical and as useful as you would hope. But there you go. That's great. Very effect, interesting. Right? By Any, the way, go ahead, yeah? Nick. Did I miss anything out? Any of his questions? No, no, no. no, no. I don't know. I actually kind of fell asleep a little Turned bit through that, half of that. But uh, <laughs> I'm sure that you covered it all. But uh, I followed just, along with great interest, and it was all <laughs> with covered. Great interest. I could just tell You're by so looking covered. at her; she was just suck mesmerized. Up. Yeah, she glazed um, the eyes glazed. <laughs> eyes glazed. <laughs> little drool coming out of her side of her mouth. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, if you want to listen, and you should. To the plain tale that Nick did on it, uh, the RBC Monsters. Uh, that was episode 333, 333. Okay. And uh, what else was I going to say? 17. Oh, okay. Oh, and, and just quickly, uh, if you look at the show notes, there one of the photos that uh, Liz threw up there uh, when uh, Nick was explaining all that um, showed the um, Ekranoplan over the water thank you uh oh, you can see uh, you can see the wingtip vortices hitting the water there right yeah that's exactly right yeah but that's the lung class and that has got uh, six uh surface or uh, anti-ship missiles mm -hmm. uh, uh four engines eight damned engines yeah four either side An incredible machine huge could carry hundreds of troops uh, and was a fantastic idea for an invasion aircraft. So you'd fly it up to the coast, you'd land at the sea just a, you know, a few hundred yards, and then you'd drive it onto the coast, and everyone would leap out with tanks and stuff. Unfortunately, you couldn't turn it, so you had to point it in yeah. the right direction to begin with. Yeah, you've got to make sure that you can – yeah, you can't jink <laughs> a lot. If a fighter rolls in behind you, you're, you're like – You're dead, yeah. Yeah. You, you meet. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, and then finally, our last piece of feedback, and yes, we're going to probably go over the uh, three-hour yeah, mark, bit, but that's bit. okay. You know, you guys love us. Um, this is from yep. Mike Cochran. Well, some of them do. On episode 442, you spoke of the poor fellow who crashed the Cessna during his first solo. This brought back memories of my first solo. I didn't crash per se, but it was very close. My initial flight training was in the swing wing helicopters flying a Robinson R-22 to be exact. For a little background, the main rotor and tail rotor of a helicopter are mechanically linked together. Before takeoff, the throttle position on an R-22 is rolled up to the flight position. There is a rotor governor that maintains 100% rotor RPM during all phases of flight. As you pull the collective up, the pitch of the main rotor blade increases. Thus, the engine puts out more power to maintain 100% motor or rotor RPM. As you decrease the collective, the pitch of the main rotor blades decrease and less power is needed from the engine. The same happens when you increase or decrease the pitch of the tail rotor blades. The governor on the R-22 worked similarly to early models of a vehicle's cruise control. As the vehicle's engine needed more power to maintain speed, the accelerator moves. Likewise, the R-22's throttle would twist in your hand as you increased or decreased the pitch of the blades as the engine is increasing and decreasing power. So, 
There I was at F-22 Airfield in Palm Beach, Florida. The instructor told me to go make a few laps in the pattern, and he hopped out of the aircraft. As I picked it up to a hover, I immediately felt the difference in CG as the aircraft was hovering more tail-heavy than I was used to. I took off and did three laps in the pattern, each ending in a hover. So far, so good. My last lap in the pattern, I knew I was going to set it back onto the ground, and I was extremely nervous. I had a death grip on both the cyclic and the collective. All was looking good until about the last 20 feet or so. A helicopter needs more power to hover as compared to straight and level flight. As I neared the ground, the governor tried to input more power from the engine, but my grip on the throttle was so tight that it could not move. As I got to four or five feet off the ground, the low RPM horn went off and I started to spin as I lost tail rotor authority. The aircraft spun about 270 degrees and somehow I managed to get it on the ground without damaging anything. The instructor ran up to make sure I was okay. My pride was hurt more than anything else. We hover taxied to the hangar, put it away for the day, and then debriefed my mistakes. The next day, I hopped back onto the horse, took a few laps in the pattern with the instructor, and then went solo again. Uneventfully this time, thank goodness. I went on to have a nice helicopter career in law enforcement and medevac. I'm now enjoying the fixed-wing life. I'm on my second year conducting medevac flights on the Hawker 800 XPI and really learning a lot. I've been as far west as China and as far east as the United Arab Emirates, with numerous places in between. The international flying experience has been priceless, and I will hopefully upgrade to the left seat in the not-too-distant future. On another note, I ran into this little gem of a town a few days ago, and I was wondering if Captain Nick could provide the correct correct pronunciation. We, and if you're watching the video, you have the uh, name of this uh, town, Um portrayed or displayed and um it's really it would take probably 15 minutes to spell this thing out because it's that long and um but i earlier today i recorded myself um pronouncing it uh, because mm-hmm. i've been to this place several different times so here let me uh, play this <laughs> now some people would say that uh, that's not even cl- – oh, stop. So what I've done is I want to speed it up a little bit. So that's going to change the pitch of my voice, but just just bear with me on that. Um, and, and this is what it sounds like when I speed things up. Pretty good, huh? Yeah, it wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite, though, is the um, the – on-air weather forecaster who's just you know going through casually giving like the weather forecast and throws yeah. this town into it yeah like he does. nothing he, he, he nails just, it boom. yeah yeah anyway he he continues yes this is a real place located just to the east of liverpool <laughs> imagine imagine having to write that town for your address there has got to be an abbreviation stay well be well mike cochran now um nick is is he correct about the location uh, of this place Sadly, not quite. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, got your easts and wests. We'll put the map uh, back a little up bit again. muddled up there, uh, there which is a bit of a worry for a pilot. Now, <laughs> Liverpool well, is typical. to the top right-hand corner of this map, <laughs> and um, Clanfair PG is where the red 
marker is. Uh-huh. Uh, and you'll notice it is actually to the west of Liverpool by, mm-hmm. I don't know, and there's your miles or more. There's your abbreviation sign for PG. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what we call it because the Air Force Base that I you, that that's me. I know it doesn't look like me because uh, I haven't got a beard and I'm wearing flares and a motorcycle and jacket. You're a lot, lot younger. Uh, yeah, I was a student <laughs> pilot at um, our Royal Air Force Valley, which is uh, on the island of Anglesey, uh, this island in uh, Wales where Clanfair PG uh, is, si- is situated. And we were at, uh, about 20 miles up the road. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I popped over on my motorcycle and uh, I took a picture or had a picture taken of me by the sign. Um, Clanfair PG has a, uh, a, a great history. It goes back to the Neolithic period, uh, at least 4,000 years BC. Uh, it was uh, invaded and captured by the Romans. Um, terribly abandoned uh, when Bodicea um, uh, sort of mounted a counterattack against the Romans in Britain. Um, and then uh, the Christians uh, formed a religious site there, and it goes on a bit. Um, but effectively, um, the name uh, means, uh, literally translated, is the Church of St. Mary of the Pool of the White Hazels near the Rapid Whirlpool and the Church of St. Tilia. Tilius Silio, uh, Silio, to St. Cilio of the Red Cave. So It's not even pronounceable in English. <laughs> not really. I mean, that not is really. almost, yeah, that's that's more complicated than the Welsh. Yeah. Then, now, in theory, it's got 58, it's written with 58 letters, but um, some of the letters, uh, CH, for example, and double L in Welsh are diagraphs, so they're combined uh, letters. So the two are formed together uh, in the same way as some uh, Greek letters are to form a single uh, vowel. Oh, look at you vowel. with all your fancy words. You Diagraph. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, very good. Anyway, it's, it's, it's a novelty. I don't think uh, it was done for anything more than to create a bit of publicity for Clanfair PG, uh, which is what everyone calls it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I understand why. Uh, <laughs> well, Mike Cochran, he is a longtime listener and part of our APG community and um, and giving us uh, very nice gifts over the year, including the, the uh, insulated. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the one that uh, says Yeti. old curmudgeon. Yes, the old curmudgeon one, yeah. That one the yeah. best, Mike. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Mike. So uh, yeah. anyway, so good can, to hear you from can you. send me another one now. With I'm terribly sorry, Nick, but <laughs> I got my east and west muddled up. <laughs> yeah, that, he it's might such a classic pick. pilot maneuver, Mike. I completely <laughs> empathize and understand. Uh, it's my brain is wired that way for some yeah, reason. Yeah, well, so. if you're 180 degrees off, um, that's pretty. Close. Well, it doesn't mean that I'm going to go the wrong direction. It just means I'm yeah. going to say the wrong direction. Ah, so don't right. listen to my directions. All right. So I take away. Just follow me instead. Don't listen to stuff. So don't, if you've got a uh, sat nav, don't download the voice that says Dr. Steph. No, no. It will <laughs> chronically just be, be turning left incorrect. instead of right. You don't know where you'll end up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, or do. It could be a good, good adventure. Oh, true. All right. Well, with that, uh, thank you all of you for sending in that great feedback. We have some more remaining in our feedback notebook, which makes Liz very, very happy. 
And we'll cover that, uh, those items on the next show, along with uh, maybe your feedback. Uh, and you're asking, how can I send in feedback? Well, you can do that by sending it to feedback at airlinepilotguy.com. And if you want to record some audio, you can do that with whatever device you're using and attach it to the email, and then we'll play it on the show if, if it's, you know, it's family suitable. Um, and uh, let's see. So go to the website. Also, there's a place where you can uh, uh, get that information along with a link to SpeakPipe, which is another way that you can record some audio feedback there. And uh, also other good information about the crew, the community, um, Plain Tales Library from uh, our librarian Tiffany. Uh, we have a calendar for the APG calendar. We have uh, merchandise, information about the coffee fund, and so much more. So check it out, airlinepilotguy.com. And we're on the social meds. We are. Please head over to twitter.com. We are at APG Crew. We're also at APG Crew on Instagram. And facebook.com slash airline pilot guy. Lots of good interaction from the community, from us, and we really hope to see you there. So Absolutely. get on the social feeds. Yes. And if you want to be a slacker, you can join us on our Slack team. And Hillel manages that. And let's see if we can find. So, um, uh oh. That's not a good. Ah, oh, yeah. Delta P. It's time for Slack. Should we give him time to wash his hands? Nah. Please. Okay. <laughs> APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. What kind of place is this? Where are we? How does this thing work? <laughs> He's confused. Hey, I have to apologize. Uh, he sent me some. You know, I mentioned on the last show that he should send some some images of him uh, in in the bathroom, and he did. He followed through with that, and uh, it's great. It's hilarious, and I can't wait to show them to you. However, I forgot to prepare all that um, since the last show, so I do apologize. I was going to ask. Yeah, but we'll we'll have that okay. on the next show. So, uh, somebody do on the we have remind to? me. Is yeah, we will have to. But uh, I think it's pretty funny. <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, so there's that. And also a big round of applause for our producer-director. Hey, Liz. Liz. Great job Toronto. tonight. Had a lot of work to do, Liz. Yeah, a lot of work to make us look somewhat intelligent and all that. So thank you, Liz, for that. Much appreciated. Welcome. We couldn't do it You're that welcome. Way. And uh, until next time, uh, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. No star. Bye, everybody.
I used to be such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline, how guy Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, not a guy I fly away